This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Welcome to, yeah, we're live. We're live in class with Dr. Greg Carr. I decided today, uh, usually we go live just on the first Saturday of the month, you know, uh, but every week we end up like talking too long. And it takes like 18 minutes to download and it doesn't hit at noon and I'm really anal about things being on time. So the last two weeks I was like, Carr, it's the same conversation we have anyway. Thank you. We just have it like we normally have it. Instead of hitting record, we just hit click go live. So thank you. Hi, no, Dr. Carr. Hey, Professor Hunter, how are you? And, and you actually know, I'm glad that they spoke to you because the, I think next, the first Saturday in November is the 7th. Is it? So we definitely needed to get this in before that. <laughs> yeah, and we did a piece on the um, insurrection at Wilmington that oh, I said yes. for the anniversary of it. So we, we, we're good. Yeah, they, like it's forward thinking. This thing is is not up to us. And I was thinking this morning because I read this book a while ago called E Squared. And it's by this woman named Pam Grout. And um, she talked about, you know, when you get almost to your goal is when there, you know, in nature, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So as soon as you get close to your goal, there's going to be a force that's going to come in to try to prevent you. And it's like that battle. And if you don't have the fortitude to push through what's coming at you with the equal force that you are going forward, I said, we must be really close. That's right. We are really close to the goal. Really close. No question about it. So what you are now, you you got me fired up earlier in the week. Um, so much has happened in the as it always does in the seven days since we see each other like this on Saturday. What's on your mind, sis? So, um, you know, I have not talked a lot about Ice Cube, Puffy, Kanye and all of this because I do feel in many ways that's the force. That's the distraction. That's the division that will keep us from getting to the next place that we need to all go collectively, you know, but I think perspective is important because in these plans from the black party that Puffy's behind to mm. Ice Cube's platinum plan that he gave to Trump, which I read this morning, and there's a whole lot of planning and scheduling and- Planning and scheduling. <laughs> And, and most of that stuff can't get go, get done without Congress, right? So I don't know. Yeah, that's right. All, really. all set aside the empowerment zones. I was like, so how you go, how you getting that done though? Um, anyway, mm. so, so like Dr. Carr, this is your specialty, Dr. Carr, Africana Studies at Howard University, head yeah. of it. We've been here before, right? How do we get through it then? Many times. Um. Well, I, I mean, I'll say this, first of all, sis, you know, very early in the week when we heard the little news about, uh, or not news, about this Cleopatra business, you know, even with social media talking, man, you asked a question, and I thought it was a very important question, you know, how should she be portrayed, and uh, and we can get rid of that in 10 minutes, uh, but we don't have to do it right now, we can do it whenever, but I think that, you know, like like you, and like a lot of people, I hope, you know, we took a look at that contract with America, the uh, the programs, I guess it's like 13 points or 14 points. I think the 13th point in Ice Cube's platform is black responsibility. And, uh, you know, a, a brother of ours and, and a brother of yours in the craft, Roland Martin had him on uh, Thursday night and I was there, I was listening to the conversation. And before that he had him on earlier, 
maybe a couple of months ago. And, you know, he was calling for help. He said, I need help. And I know he had some people working with him. Um, uh, Derek Hamilton, I know brother Derek, good brother, does a lot of work. He's an economist by training and a really sharp brother, uh, brilliant, um, at Ohio State University. And he has done some work around reparations and tallying up the costs and what it would look like if we got it, if we took it, uh, if, if the demand was met. And I know Derek was working with Cube on some of these things. And so, you know, for me, it was less about the substance of the, the plan, the contract, um, and really even almost less about the execution in terms of the things that you raise, which are, of course, the things themselves. If someone says, OK, fine, then the how is really the work. And, but it, it's more for me about the question of tactic, difference between tactics and strategies, and then the question of study and how these things get blended together so that we can actually convert some of this talk into action. So, of course, since Q kind of got caught up in this uh, in this game, and you probably saw the article in Politico that dropped. Uh, right around the same time uh, Cube was on Rolling Show Thursday night. Um, actually, probably a little after that, which led me to believe that they really set Cube up. And, you know, it's interesting that we'll talk about this, too, as we get into our conversation. The whole idea of referring to people by their stage names or professional names, um, you know, it kind of bothers me some when I think about, you know, the way we are generally portrayed in media and how, you know, sometimes you, you get the impression somebody making fun of you. So when I see a Chris Cuomo or Q, man, name is O'Shea Jackson. I'm not saying he doesn't want you to refer to him as Ice Q, but at some point there's an element of the surreal. You know, when I look at the New York Times and uh, Megan Pete writes an article on protecting black women and it's published on the op-ed page of the New York Times under Megan the with two E's stallion. I'm like, at some point, are they laughing? at you when they do this or when Diddy sits with uh with the young brother who uh you know interviewed him on Revolt TV and that dropped in the last 24 hours uh brother uh, brother Denard brother Denard McKelvey and it, you know knowing a little bit about the history of the Holy Roman Empire and white Catholicism and its clash with the Muslims and I find it difficult to call anyone I wouldn't call anyone regardless of any background Charlemagne the God I mean it's just there's there's a level of absurdity that comes with those things now that haven't been said. <laughs> can, we, can we pause there for a second? Because yeah. as you're talking, I'm thinking about all of the nicknames that were given to us, and then the nicknames that we get, like we all know a Pookie and a Ray Ray, and all oh, you know, like. But it's a diminishing thing when now you are a serious actor. Not, I'm not talking about thespian. I'm talking about a serious actor engaged with with the president of the United States, engaged with political operatives, and yes. you are in a nickname space of diminishment, right? Like, so how does that, how does that, so when you said it, I was like, oh, I didn't even think about that. That's why I love you. Okay, go, go ahead, keep talking. No, no, we're live, y'all. And because we are live, we say this every week, and really, well, we say this every week, we talk a lot about God, the ancestors, the forces, the spirits. Uh, I watched that conversation between Sean Combs and uh, and Lenar McKelvey. And it was interesting because uh, Brother Combs kept coming back to the question of divine order and, and, and 
God. He said, you know, but but that having been said, we're not, this isn't scripted. We say that every week, but just to show you, here we are. And then you say, you know, not talking about thespians, you made a distinction between thespians and these performers and now in movies. Like in other words, stage actors, a thespian is a stage actor. So why this morning did I say, oh, that's cool. Let me slip on a hoodie. Why do I have this hoodie on? This is Ira Aldrich, the first black man to play Othello in England at the theater that was built in the, in the space where uh, Shakespeare originally wrote the play for the stage. This is Ira Aldrich. This is Paul Robeson's hero. I just happened, I, or apparently not, to put that on. And so since I put it on, I said, let me come in here and grab an Aldrich book. There are a number of, of Aldrich books. Um, but this is one by Bernard Linford's. This is volume one of her two-volume piece. This is Ira Aldrich, the Black actor, the early years, 1807 to 1833 by Bernard Linford. Ira Aldrich went to school at the New York African Free School, which was one of the early schools for people of African descent in New York City, really in the country. Uh, Ira Aldrich went there. James McCune Smith, who ended up a, a, a medical doctor and a brilliant uh, scientist and writer. Um, the great Alexander Crummel went to a school at the New York African Free School, but Ira Aldridge was the actor. And when Paul Robeson came of age, who we'll be talking about in a minute as we think about Diddy, and as we think about, uh, you know, Cube and all the rest of them, and the distinction between how entertainers interface with politics, black entertainers in this country, um, Dick Gregory, Eartha Kitt, we're gonna talk about a lot of people, Nina Simone, Abby Lincoln, I mean, I just started. But, you know, it goes back to that early moment when you say, how are you going to represent your people? In other words, when other people look at the African, what are they going to think? So when you made that distinction between thespian and, and, and actors, we think about them now. And it's interesting because I can't imagine, first of all, I can't imagine any of those earlier people having nicknames like the ones we have now. And some of that may even be with regard to class. But of course, when Ira Aldridge was uh, uh, born and when he was living, this was in a period of enslavement in the United States. And often, in fact, often during enslavement, uh, the enslavers would give our captive ancestors uh, these overly inflated names as a mockery of their humanity. So they would name them things like Caesar and Pompey, give them Roman names. In fact, remember in the novel, Pierre Iboulier, I think was his name. I have it around here somewhere, one of them little dime novels that got converted into the movie, Planet of the Apes. And then of course, after Hollywood got it, they just kept making them over and over again. Then they remake them, Donnie Wahlberg, then they remake them, you know. It's, but remember the name of the first ape that they had captive to work for them who learned how to talk was Caesar. Well, that, that tradition comes out of Europeans giving people of African descent these names of Roman emperors and things like that as a joke, because your name is Caesar, but you my slave. So for someone to name themselves Charlemagne, understand the gesture toward this. First of all, you know, there are a lot of uh, African rulers. You could have named yourself uh, Most the God, or Tutankhamun the, the God. And, you know, I mean... Um, uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, your friend, uh, Immortal Technique, the great Immortal Technique. One of the DJs, of course, is is Green Tutankhamun uh, Lantern, and I like that. Green Lantern is a comic character, but he put Tutankhamun in there in the middle. Say, put the Egyptian. If you're gonna put a king in there, you're gonna put a pharaoh. But damn, Charlemagne, really? That's a name you could have got on the plantation in Kentucky. 
or South Carolina, I think uh, Brother right. North is South Carolina. But, but, but the idea is whether you had a nickname or not, you wouldn't show up at the White House or go to a meeting with that nickname. And 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 you know in 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 recognition that they don't always do that that people don't always do that you do see sometimes people drop their nicknames when they come into I mean we saw Ludacris do that when he started making the conversion into film he started using his birth name and this kind of thing and then and then of course there is the argument that all of those names come from at least the last ones come from uh, the history of captivity so I don't have any problem people changing their names and so I'm, I'm not really in a beef with that but it's I just find it as you do kind of surreal that we use these names in these spaces where you know are open enemies and I would include in enemies those who are not open those who think they're helping us but you know my, the, the litmus test I always ask is would you do that with your own people in other words or would you say no nah, well we're not going to pub I mean you do have a name don't you uh, ma'am Yes, my name is Pete, Megan Pete. Okay, well, can we publish this op-ed on the New York Times page under Megan Pete, just so that people understand that, you know, this is you and that that Megan the Stallion is kind of a stage persona. But anyway, all that having been said, because ultimately that's what people want you to do when we start talking to people. Say, no, I'm a human being. Okay, well, then we're going to need you to present yourself in the world as a human being from time to time because these kids are the ones that get confused. We're adults. We can make a distinction. So at any rate, uh, I watched the, to use the self-declared titles, conversation between Diddy and Charlemagne uh, that was on Revolt TV and then put on YouTube, about a 30-minute conversation. I found it fascinating um, because, again, the substance of what uh, Combs was saying to McKelvey, I don't really have any substantive critique. The basic thesis of that conversation that Combs was having was, we need an independent base for political power. Nobody's gonna look out for our interests. He said, I'm an independent. And then, you know, McKelvey asks him, Charlemagne asks him, you know, but you said to withhold the vote. What changed? He said, well, look, we gotta get Trump out of there. This is what he said. He said, he said, this guy, if he gets elected, it's going to be a race war. I'm scared it's going to be a race war. Now, if they want to knock if they buck, then we'd be out here in the street. We got to do what we got to do. But this guy got to go. So, and then Charlemagne says, well, so you saying vote? He said, yeah, we got to vote. But that's not enough. We need our own black political party. We need to have our own agenda. He said, we never had a black political party. Now I'm listening and I'm wincing because now what's also coming out is the ignorance. That's why we're doing this every Saturday. No, we've had black, we've had political parties. Don't again, we have to distinguish between people running candidates for elected office and groups coming together to determine an agenda for that group with items on the agenda that we then organize to execute, which includes among strategies putting people in policy making positions to execute our agenda. That is a definition of a party. When people think of party in America, they think of electoral politics only two-party system, independent party, we have a green party. No, a political party is a, is a formation, is a political formation, an organized structural formation where people come together to determine how best to advance their collective interests. The, tea, that, party. the tea Party. The Tea Party is a perfect example. Is a perfect example. People say, they're a Tea Party Republican. 
Hell, I'd even go so far as to now see because they're getting ready to put one of these whole stone cold crazy QAnon people in Congress from the state of Georgia. QAnon gonna have a Q QAnon Republicans, <laughs> as if those terms haven't come so close together as to be virtually indistinguishable in a lot of ways. Uh, ben Sass, Senator Sass, and all you people now trying to run from your friend. Now, nah, y'all all in the same clavering. That's y'all grand wizard. You could have got rid of him with the impeachment. So now that you're looking at the numbers, you see Joni Ernst getting ready to uh, get her throat cut in Iowa politically. Now that you see Lindsey Graham on TV crying crocodile tears after he done broke every rule in the United States Senate, my opponent is, he's, he's raising so much money. Can't you come and save me? Yeah, now that you see all that, now y'all want to run the other way from Trump. Now that's y'all grand wizard. That's y'all grand wizard, uh, Ben. Ben Sass from Central Casting. Nah. That's y'all. That's y'all, Grand Wizard. So anyway, the Republican Party, the White Nationalist Party, and the QAnon have almost merged in some ways. But yes, that's a political formation. And that's weaponized ignorance. But there's a political dimension. So when Diddy says we need a black political party, you right, bro. When he says we've never had a black political party, you wrong, bro. And so then Charlemagne asks him. He says, you know, well, should we be the ones doing this? And now I'm thinking in my head, I ain't mad at. Uh, I'm not mad. At him, I'm not mad at, at Lenore McKelvey any more than I'm mad at uh, at Megan Pete. I'm not mad at them. Every generation creates out of the materials of its environment and context those who they see as representative figures. Now the mark the market plays a role in that. The market amplifies certain elements for profit because see these people making money don't care what you singing and dancing. If they can convert it into money, then they're gonna put that on the label. But that, that that has to come, well, it, it used to anyway, it still does in some ways, it has to come out of a population. So I can't, you can't be mad at the representative figures of people who have come through a certain educational system, a certain moment in the political economy of this country, a certain white lash to the advancements of the 1960s and 70s, and that includes a cultural advancement, the black arts movement, and some of this. I mean, this is this is a response to that. You see this stuff. So I can't be mad at them. I'm not mad at Megan, I'm mad at Charlemagne, Diddy, any of them. But it's interesting because in that process of maturing, I'm listening to Charlemagne asking Diddy these questions. Questions, by the way, that would be asked if these two brothers were getting their hair cut. And I'm sitting in there listening to this intergenerational debate and argument, which I think makes it valuable in a sense, because I don't know that a Karen Hunter, that a Roland Martin could ask Diddy the questions that you would ask. Actually, yeah, I think y'all could. But there would be a certain organizational logic in your heads as professional journalists that would almost require you to, there's a disciplined approach that a, a kind of Charlemagne the God is chaos theory. In other words, you're not a journalist. So, I mean, you're, you're kind of a, you're, you're a public figure who has radio program, television, now you're streaming. And so people, it's like DJ Vlad and them, right? You know, Lunell and them. I mean, you just ask them questions, right? You just have a conversation. And there's a value to that. But it was interesting because then you hear Charlemagne as Diddy says, uh, and this is where, I, like I said, I have in my head, oh, he's been listening to his critics and he's been listening to whoever he is relying on to help him improve in his craft. Because as we live, we can improve if we're committed to improve. Now I'm hearing him ease in with this. He says, so from withhold the vote to now political party, okay, what changed? Then he answered that. Then he says, should we be the ones leading it though? What about the people who are out there 
doing it every day. That's like what that's what they do. And he names West Bellamy who's down in Charlottesville, the vice mayor. He names a few other people. And I'm thinking, oh, Charlamagne, I see you. Because you know that the political work in the street isn't your work. But you also know that these kids are watching y'all on these platforms. So now you're going to ask the guy who has jumped out there and said, Black political party, should we be the ones doing this? And you asking it is different than Karen asking it. It's different than Roland asking it because there's not going to be that immediate, maybe generational tension. And in your case, Karen, I think, you know, given the fact that, you know, you have you have a style, I think, where you could probably approach it in a way that he might have given the same response. But for sure, Charlemagne, that's his age mate. They dudes, they stand in there. You know, so when he asks, he for says, the record, For the record, uh, Puppy and I are in the same age generation. I just want to just put that out there. Uh, well, in that case, that means all, all three of us. All three of us. I just wanted to, yes, just for the but, record, sir. We oh, I should stop. I should, stop. I should make the distinction between <laughs> chronological age. I mean, not get in trouble here. Numerical age and apparent right, age right. in terms of. Yes, we'll just. We'll yeah, because on. I mean, part of that branding is to keep generating the illusion of youth. And that is one of the yeah, and that is one of the deep, um, the that is the result of a deep assault on the African personality since the beginning of our captivity, because our captivity has always, in this racialized uh, settler state we're in, and in the white supremacist last half millennia of human history, the infantilization of the African has always been key, a central part of the attempt to subjugate us in, in this oppressive system. Meaning what? keep them as children. I don't care how old they get. I always refer to them as children. Because see, white celebrities can age even if they are still trapped by the popular memory in their childhood. Look at Shirley Temple or Shirley Temple Black as she is known when she becomes an ambassador. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And goes out under you know, Nixon Reagan administration. Look at Mickey Mantle who uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a biography of Mickey Mantle called The Last Boy. Mickey Mantle represented Americans child, America's childhood. And by America, of course, you know I mean white America. But Mickey, Mickey Rooney. Mickey Rooney, same thing. Right. Eternally child, but allowed to mature even as they retain that childhood. But our people, you know, you stay a child your whole life. You can't get old. <laughs> You know, when you don't know that when you don't know that and you perpetually are a child doing childish things, never putting away those childlike things. And and when you were talking about the evolution of our art, this this didn't come out of our streets. This this debauchery. You know, you know, when Chuck D and the poor righteous teachers and, and you know, leaders of the new school and KRS one and all, oh, all you know, that came out of even Melly Bell and all of that. Big Daddy Kane, I just spoke with him a couple of weeks ago. Kane. That, came out of, that came out of our, our culture, right? And and it, and it had range. And then we had that 90s space that brought us NWA and Ice Cube and all of it, you know. But did it come out of commercialism and, and did it really come out? Yeah, after police and, and cop killing all that definitely was a response and reaction too. But that well, stuff that Puffy and, and Jermaine Dupri and them were doing, did that really come out of our culture? Yes, I think it did. And no, of course it didn't at the same time. I mean, these forces, and that's the thing I think, Karen, that's actually a very good question and an interesting, very important observation. 
because those first artists that you talked about came, of course, out of our generation. Those of us who are now in their late 40s, early to mid 50s, you're looking at, you know, Colin Ritterhauer and them, you know, looking at uh, Chuck D, uh, William Rakim Griffin. And I think about that, of course, because uh, his, 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 his memoir just came out, Sweat the Technique. I mean, there are a lot of books that we could talk about, but uh, Rakim Sweat the Technique is, mm. a, is you know, co-written with our brother, uh, Bakari Kitwana, my man, yes. Bakari. Yeah, Bakari, good brother. In fact, they were here at the Kennedy Center. It's one of the last things I was able to go to where that play hit. And so I got a chance to sit, you know, and, and listen to them talk about how they work through this work. It really is a chronicle of, see, these are, and we are, in many ways, the children, the direct children of the black arts movement, the black, uh, the black power movement, the black studies movement. And so what you see is, you know, you, you hear, and of course, you know, Chuck D being your friend, you know, you know, Chuck talks about growing up in a household where that all that music was played, that jazz and, you know, jazz performance. Rakim's aunt, Ruth Brown, one of the great jazz singers, you know, so when he says, as I'm writing, you know, uh, and I know you got soul, you know, I start to think and then I sink into the paper like I was ink. When I'm writing, I'm trapped in between the line. I escape when I finish the rhyme. I got soul. What he's saying is, and he talks about his process. He says, I think like a jazz musician, I'm going to go past the 4-4 four, four framework in a, in a song. And I'm thinking about the note or the word I'm going to hit at the other time, at the other thing. So even in a song like Follow the Leader, right? He says, you know, um, I'm trying to remember. Um, Wow. Oh, I guess a, a, another good example is um is let the rhythm hit him, right? When let the rhythm hit him when he's talking about um you know when I enter a space, MC's grounds are neutral. Now that I'm here, let me introduce you. I'm ready. Rhymes I deliver are heavy. Beats I know are real steady. And he starts in, but he's not he's not going to go into a uh, into a four four schedule. Same thing with the great black thought out of Philly, another, you know, late 40, early 50 something child of black arts, black poetry. So you even hear, and you got me, you know, when you hear that, you know, you got me. And he says, you know, you know, I went home, think, you know, bet you thought the time had, bet you thought that thought it, bet you thought that thought it forgot time passed. No, you stop when you hear, bet you thought that thought it forgot. That's the end of the line but he says time passed in other words i went over the end of that measure into the next beat that, he's thinking like a musician thinks now of course Tariq trotter met amir Questlove thompson at the uh, uh philadelphia high school for performing arts right there in south philly i used to work for the school district i was in and out of that building a lot and so i'm saying th these are these are artists who are deeply infused with musical traditions last week i, I moderated a conversation with terrace martin robert glasper uh, among others, around uh, uh, um, Kendrick, Lam uh, Kendrick Lamar, and you know these are these are trained musicians, and Terrace man, fascinating. This guy is out of um, out of the street, out of Crenshaw, in L.A. Robert Glasper, of course, out of Houston, traveled different places. These are trained musicians who are building a bridge with this generation of performing artists, so that when we look now at their generation. And really, they're kind of close. Well, well, you know, I think Robbie is glass, but look closer to us. But now with Kendrick Lamar and them, they're like the grandchildren of that Black Power, Black Arts movement. But to your observation, 
after our generation, which would include Dana Owens, Queen Latifah, which would include Rakim and Chuck D, as you said, Poor Righteous Teachers, Big Daddy Kane, of course. All you know, in terms of poor righteous teachers out of Trenton and Kane coming out of New York, these guys are heavily influenced by the five percenters, the five percent nation of Islam. Of course, Clarence 13X that came out of the nation of Islam, and of course, they still got their spot over there on uh Adam Clayton Powell, right? So, I mean, so the the idea is that that next generation has now hip hop has moved past the east coast, and people in different parts of the country are beginning to tell their stories. But what also is happening, which is why it's not out of their culture alone, the, the market has intervened and they're going to sell to people the stereotypes of black people that will be consumed for profit. And once it, is, once it gets into that venture, you start talking about UNTV raps comes on television, you start talking, you know, now we're talking about the late 80s, early 90s. Now you start talking about uh, the market saying, let us extract out of this those elements of quote unquote black culture that will sell, and we ain't selling just to black people. In a short order of time, white people start consuming it. And of course, in white people's minds, the white popular imagination, the African is a zoo animal anyway. So let's let's sensationalize this. And so what starts as a fair, I mean, when you listen to those early NWA tracks, you know, let's listen when that's talking about the movie. So don't go think you can watch straight out of Compton. And get a sense of this in any real sense. You know, you got to actually listen to what comes out of those streets, right? Compton is considered one of the great success stories of the Negro middle class coming out of into, into the West Coast in the 1950s and 60s. Ball players who went out there to play football, baseball, whatever, they're buying houses out there. They, they, they buy businesses. They have it. And then, but what we see is the deterioration of Compton as the political economy of, uh, of California uh, starts to collapse for Black people in the 1980s and 90s. So when you hear, you know, dope man. You know, it's it's crazy. This was once said by a man who couldn't quit. Dope man, please, can I have another hit? I mean, this is not, <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's not, the, the earth is not a complete celebration of gangster culture. What it's saying is, this thing has dried up. It was once said by a man who couldn't quit. <laughs> Do you understand? I mean, so it's not, not by a man who grew up dreaming to get high. And so what I'm saying is, but once that starts to hit, the thing starts getting out of control. And who leaves the group? Because he sees this thing and I'm getting exploited. And he's also in the, who else is in his ear? Chuck D is in his ear. The Nation of Islam is in his ear. He, he sits with Angela Davis. It's O'Shea Jackson, whose parents worked at one of the schools out there, I think the University of Southern California. Not on the academic side, but he but he grew up in kind of middle-class surroundings, right? School, and, and, and so now, he's like, man, this guy's taking advantage of us. So when you hear Death Certificate, his first album, then you hear his second, I'm sorry, America's Most Wanted, his first album, then Death Certificate, he done broke with all that, and he's now overtly political. You know, I mean, when you hear a bird in the hand, Oh my God, a bird in the hand? That's a political manifesto. People concentrate on No Vaseline on that album because he's right. roasting NWA, right? He's right. roasting these cats, the political break. But when you hear a bird in the hand, there's no SE for this youngster. He says, you know, uh, he said, fresh out of school because I was a high school dad. Had to get a job because I was a high school grad. He says, you know, I pay taxes that you never give me back. What about diapers and bottles and Similac? Should I should I wait for help from Bush or, or Jesse Jackson and Operation Push? You asked me the whole thing, you know, Dishon Mass and Gale. What the hell? Crackle sale in the neighborhood as we talked about before. So this whole idea is he's he's breaking down the political economy. Black Korea, you know, he's all the things that happen. And even the chronic, 
the day the ends took over. You hear them in this. So I'm saying I had to say this. That's the transition moment. What, we, what they call now gangster rap, there's a critique of the political economy. They're even sampling black power movement eras. Express yourself. They sampled the Watts 103rd Street Band. When you hear that boom, boom, express yourself and then Dre comes in, you know, I'm expressing to my full capabilities. Now I'm living in correctional facilities. I mean, so in other words, they, they, they're, they're breaking, I mean, there's still a political, in fact, you couldn't release a popular release without some type of political song. Even Kane with its self-celebratory, you know, smooth operator, Prince of Darkness, he's got, you know, black and proud, you know, proud to be a black man. You know what I'm saying? And, he, and then he samples on there Louis Farrakhan on the mother, the father of the universe. You hear him saying that. And so I'm saying I have to say there's something else to increase in. Now there's another wave. And that's coming out of New York. Diddy and them. Right? Biggie doing the same thing. I'm just out here trying to feed my daughter in Juicy, right? I mean, he's talking about the political economy. But then this self-celebratory good life thing comes in and there's a car crash between the materialist culture that is at that materialism, which is the heart at the heart of the American enterprise. America has never been around about sacrifice, patriotism in terms of taking care of each other. I said BS they sell when it's election time and people want to cry and look at the flag and, and weep open tears. But go back and read the Constitution of the United States, which is basically a contract document. You know how it's a contract document? Look at the first three articles. Look at the things it protects. Look at the things that it guarantees some sort of state intervention if these rules are violated. And all you got to know to know that it's basically a contract document that is organized around the protection of property is all you have to know, all you have to see to realize that. I don't have a copy. I usually keep a copy of the Constitution around because when we in my class on Wednesday nights when I'm teaching at the law school, I have to look and see. I usually keep one around here. <laughs> yeah, it is. So when you uh, when you read the Constitution, which isn't very long, uh, when you get to the end of the Constitution, guess what? By the time you get to the end of the federal Constitution, they realize something. Oh, we didn't. What about individuals? <laughs> <laughs> so they amended the Constitution with the first 10 is called the Bill of Rights. This is what deals with the individual, you see. But that's after they finished the document. So anyway, I'm saying I have to say that the American Negro catches up to that eventually. Oh, this is about personal comfort, individual wealth, but there's echoes of the African that will never leave us. So when I get on, I'm gonna help all the rest of my friends. So of course, during this early 90s period, when you, late 80s, early 90s period, when you see this next wave, this self-celebratory culture, this material culture, it seeps into popular black youth culture all over. This is the rise of the Allen Iversons. You know, Allen Iverson out of the Tidewater region of Virginia, a southerner, who ends up in Philadelphia. And to this day, if you say something bad about Allen Iverson, you better be ready to fight in the, in the streets of Philadelphia because he is an adopted Philadelphian and getting his hair braided up there on Germantown Avenue, wearing the large, the, you know, wearing the baggy shorts and all the rest of that stuff brings all that into the NBA. And all of a sudden, uh, David Stern now want a dress code. Why? Whoa, shit, it was cool when we saw y'all hip hop records, but now these niggas out here influencing my nephew and niece and mother. And, and, and you know, so my point is that that kind of culture is a car crash because you've got the American dream, so-called ideals, 
materialism, all this. You got the Africanization of it, which means, yeah, I want all that stuff too. I'm going to pop bottles too, but I'm going to put my mans in them on. So Iverson gets a check. All of a sudden, there's 20 dudes with him, and the NBA is writing articles about entourage. What's an entourage? No, we Africans, meaning what? If I'm on, you on. So we all showing up, but we all going to be dripped. You know what I'm saying? So they don't know what to do with that car crash. And then and over the arc of all that period, the relationship between entertainers and artists, and in fact, stop calling them entertainers and artists at this point, because now there's a commodification of visibility. That's what we call platform that can be commercialized as well. So now you basically got units of commerce that are you a musician? Eh, are you an actor? Yeah. Are you a singer, a, a ball player? I'm a celebrity. What's a celebrity? Oh, well, a, 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 a celebrity is someone with platform. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that I can sell you something or I can get you to buy something based on my visibility. So now platform becomes a thing. But what has happened is there's a deterioration uh, of the logic of how we use platform. Because platform has always been a thing but it wasn't always used in this commercial strict sense. So to tie some of this together, and then we kind of, I want to, you know, let's say we'll have a conversation and hopefully we'll get a chance to get some questions and, and, and answers and discussion. Visibility has always been, visibility is as old as the human race. It is one of the organizational logics of society. In other words, who are the individuals who we use as representative of the larger society? So, you know, go back to the village, you know, heads of household, the adults are the representative figures, the mothers and fathers. Okay, so what's the relationship once we get out of this house? Okay, aunts, uncles, different, so the larger the society grows, the more you need representative figures that aren't tied to you by blood. So, you know, now you got a cluster. Now you got a vast expanse of territory and maybe y'all only get together three times a year for the rites of passage, the harvest festival. And at that, okay, it's a lot of old people here. Who should I look? the person that all the old people look to among themselves okay now okay is she the queen mother or she must be why because all the old people deferring to her is he the, the ruler yeah must be why because the queen mothers got together and said you be the king for now till we get tired of you that's how the ashanti's did it i mean so now we know the representative figures and that's all over so every human society clusters in some of those formations when it gets too big well, you can't know everybody and you can't even know people who know everybody when you get to say several thousands of miles of a river like the Nile, then you then what emerges is Egypt or Kemet, which is where you get, wow, the Pharaoh. Who is the Pharaoh? The Pharaoh is the living embodiment of the society. Not where I'm from, where you from? I'm from Menefer. That's a long way from here. I don't even know who, but I, I trust that that's the guy because I've seen this etching on the wall with the similar, okay, that's him? Okay, all right, so we do what he say. Well, no, you do what we say here, but then we do what he say. And so it, it connects all the way. I mean, so President of the United States is no big deal for people who understand how large territories are governed. Because this is now we're talking about governance. But just like you would never see a singer in ancient Egypt come into the temple at Herakpetah in Memphis, come into a suit and tell the priest, okay, that's what we're going to do. Or go to the Pharaonic and say, no, I think, you know, we, you know what, we're going to withhold the wheat harvest until, although they did have revolutions and things like that, but you wouldn't see the singers leading it. Fast forward back to where we are now. When, what happens when the singers, when the celebrities become the politicians? Well, people could say, you see that in white society. No, you don't. No, you don't. And yes, you do. You'll see, you'll see 
it now in American society, what used to be laughable is now thinkable. You got television hosts as the president of the United States, in part, the way is paved by a movie guy becoming the governor of California, a wrestler becoming the governor of Minnesota, because the consumer culture, the celebrity culture has begun to overtake the politics. And so what you see black people doing in some ways is mirroring that without the ability to continue to harness our group interests to leverage political power and the transfers into policy, translates into policy. So when Diddy shows up and says, we need a black political party because we ain't never had no black political party. This is somebody who has been made famous as a result of coming through a culture that has been commercialized uh, by his predecessors who were brought into that commercial cu uh, culture. Everybody from Freddie Brakeway, you know, who is, uh, I think uh, he's related. I think Max Roach is his uncle. Of course, we know him as Fab Five Freddy, the host of your MTV rap. Your MTV wasn't playing no black nothing until Michael Jordan and Michael Jackson them kicked in the door. And then they black as hell, you know. Uh, but now Diddy and them are on the scene. Diddy said, okay, I have visibility. I've trans I've used that to make a lot of money, uh, relatively speaking, because ain't nobody black got a lot of money compared to the people with a lot of money in this society. Uh, well, even the richest black man, Robert Smith the third, got hemmed up. Him. Oh, I'm like, they yoked him like dude. You no, well, gotta go home, well, but you gotta get the hell out of here. <laughs> I had a conversation with a buddy of mine. I said, you know, he forgot he was black, you know, because when you're in that space, this is standard operating procedure. All of that offshore money and you know, all of the shenanigans around money. Trump's been doing it how he paid $750 two years in a row. Clearly, clearly there's a blueprint that he's witnessing. So why no should you? Oh, no, 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 no. You are black. We are going to follow you for four years, uncover everything. He had to drop the largest check. I was like, but he had it. But Trump thank God. Yeah, and thank and God, thank he, God he didn't go to jail. He would have gone to jail if he wasn't able to pay that back. But, but here's the thing. Wesley Snipes wrote the check, and they still put him in jail. That's why I say, I mean, you never, I'll never put nothing past these people. Pay your taxes, <laughs> You black, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes, you black, because you're exactly right. And and, to the, and I'm glad you raised the case of Robert Smith, who uh, has made significant, given significant support, Museum of American History and Culture, uh, 1619 Project, did a lot of work. Quite, and then, of course, forgave all that, got paid all those kids' debt, and more, I was told, pay it forward, trying to help the institutions out and set a model. And anyway, I was like, yeah, you're not one of us. So I'm trying to sneak out here with this black behavior. Boom, the tax on you, buddy. So no question. But so, I mean, Diddy, and it's funny because in the interview, in the back and forth between these brothers, Diddy said something. He said a number of things I thought was interesting. He said, you know, there isn't a level that I can get to where I will escape being black. He said, I've seen it in these rooms, in these boardrooms, in these business deals. He said, me, Jay-Z. Oprah, we get treated like N-words. He said that. And I'm listening like, see, I don't question the motive in the sense of wanting Black political power. I don't question Cube. I don't question Diddy. What I question is the tactic. And the tactic, oh, yeah, that's the other thing. When, he, when, 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 when Charlemagne said that, he said, you know, should we be the ones doing it? He's like, nah, I just want to support it. At that point, I said, okay. Okay, that makes sense. But now, you need to understand tactic is an issue. 
It's one thing if you make this announcement November the 20th or December the 20th about a black political party. It's another thing when you to make it in the second week, now the third week of October before a federal election that they are actively trying to steal. In fact, actively stealing fake ballot boxes in California, denying requests. In fact, uh, the Black Labor Union put in a request for more boxes. And now the story came out the other day that uh, the election officials then called this hand van Spavosky, this criminal who was in, was in charge at one time of voter suppression efforts to find to get advice, then called these brothers and sisters back and said, nah, y'all can't handle no more boxes. Well, they, like, they're throwing away ballots. I mean, you've talked to Greg Palace a couple of times. You know, Ari Berman and them are reporting, you know, throwing away ballots, absentee ballots, which is why I'm telling people, look, if you can vote in person, vote in person. Because if you mail it in, I'm looking at them. They're going to try to throw away all those ballots on where your signature doesn't match you. You got one sentence off it, all this kind of thing. So while all that's going on, that's not when you get up on TV and talk to your friend Charlemagne and say, we need a black political party. Hold on. So you're saying that vote? No, I'm saying vote. But we got to vote because we got to get Trump out of here. OK, but see, most people are not going to watch this video. All they're going to see amplified by out of every 10 tweets, seven of them, six of them, three of them, tw however many of them coming from a troll factory in the Ukraine. You know what I'm saying? All they're going to see is Diddy said, don't get nobody your vote. And there's no they're going to lie on you anyway. You don't give them fodder. And then Brother Q. Brother Q, who has those 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 albums, call it Muhammad, had voices from the Nation of Islam, you know, puts out a plan for Black America that's been developed with a couple of Black academics and inviting others to join in the conversation. Well, first time he's on Rolling Show, you know, he said, oh, yeah, I'll work with you, Dr. Carr, anybody y'all want to work with? Okay, but see, here's the problem. It's a question of tactics. Tactics are what are the ways you will move to pursue your larger objective? Strategy is developed pursuant to those larger objectives. And then tactic is the tools you choose to execute your strategy with those larger objectives in mind. So what's your largest objective? We need black political power. Okay, what's your strategy? Okay, my strategy is to, well, given where we are right now, we got two political parties. Okay, this guy's an open fascist and a white nationalist, and they're going to have a race war. So this other guy, I don't like him either, or the sister. I'm glad she's black and it's wonderful. But I think, like Linda Sarsour said, they're probably a better opponent for us to have. That's your strategy then, to try to, try to move that party until you can get your own political formation? Yes, probably. Okay, so what's your tactic? Okay, voter registration. We got to get all that. Okay, all right, very good. All right, so now, uh, and so when are you going to pursue that tactic? Well, I say right now, I'm going to say I ain't negotiating with neither side. Hold on, bro. <laughs> wait, wait. I thought you said the ultimate objective. Yeah. And I thought you said the strategy. Yeah. So the tactic is what? I'm going to listen to both sides. I'm not saying that vote. No, bro. See, understand because they got tactics and strategies and objectives, too. And they're in control of the structure and the apparatus. So this is what they're going to do to you. This is what the political thing reported. They're going to say, Q. Come help us. Why? Because their objective is to run this white settler state till the wheels fall off. And they don't give a damn. Lindsey Graham broke all the rules in the Judiciary Committee. Mitch McConnell laughing at his debate with Amy McGrath the other day. They People are dying. He's like, <laughs> like the purebred to his DNA devil he is. He's laughing. Why you give a damn? And these hillbillies in, in Kentucky going to vote for him. Why? Because they laughing too. Even as they, they, they go into the graveyard to get in laugh into the grave. If you don't understand white supremacy, everything else you think you understand will only confuse you. So they got objectives and they've got the apparatus. 
Then they call you and say, Q, come meet with us. Because their objective is to stay in power. Their strategy is to pick off a few celebrities and try to depress the vote. And their tactic is to make the call to you. You say, I don't want to go. Then if political can be trusted, political reports that uh, Q reaches out to, among others, some people who've been thinking about how to get power who are saying we should be independent, like Claude Anderson. Claude Anderson is named in the political, political article. Claude Anderson... We were, were interviewed, says, yeah, I, they called me. I'm not meeting with the Trump. I don't want nothing to do with Trump. Why? Because Claude Anderson, the elder, understands. No, you don't even do that. But Q says, I'm not going until I know it's serious. So guess what? Q's longtime manager is friends with somebody on the GOP side. Okay. Then the next thing you know, they can pull them in. Then the next thing you know, Q quietly slips into D.C., according to Politico. And it seems to me that if it was wrong, it would be uh, corrected very quickly because Q hadn't said that he didn't go to these meetings. And he said, I'm not going to the White House because I don't want to be seen over there, but I'll meet you in the hotel. What, Jared Kushner, what, you, are you meeting with them? Now, Roland asked him directly Thursday night, have you met with them? He said, nah, and then they dropped the political hammer on him the next day. Why? Because, see, they got objectives, strategies, and tactics, too. And one thing that's one of their objectives is we are going to rule. We don't care if Donald Trump's brain start oozing out his ear. As long as he can hold the signing pen, we with him. Hold on. He's going to lose the election. Ben Sass and them, oh, I'm concerned. Nah, stitch them to that signing pen. Because your objective is white supremacy ruling and the corporate class. Your strategy was to get this signing pen. And now you're going to try to change tactics five minutes before they pull the lever? Nah, our tech, no. We're, we're lashing you down. But Cube is now out here getting shot out from both sides. And then he's on last night with Chris Cuomo on CNN. And Cuomo is like, come on, man. This guy here told you that, yeah, told everybody that, you know, black people ain't this and that's old countries and you gonna support that? And Cuba's like, I don't, I don't know what Trump said. I just know, I just, I just, I just know what he said he was gonna do. What did he say he was gonna do, Q? Well, it's $500 million. Bruh, did you read that? That money don't go to black people if there was money. I'm sorry, let's not even get to that. You know the guy's a liar, right? You know that if he thought he would get votes by saying uh, an old Fat Albert number, like 11 billion, we're going to get y'all 11 billion? I mean, he, <laughs> he would write that, right? Do you understand? Is there, then Diddy jumps in, we're going to have our own political party. Okay, Q, Diddy, with y'all on black independent political power. Sean, this has been a debate and a discussion and organizational work that has taken place in African communities of African descent for at least, at least two centuries. The first black political conventions take place in the North, New York, Philadelphia, the 1830s. The main objective is ending enslavement. So when they meet in Philadelphia, when they meet in New York, when they meet in Troy, New York, when they meet in the 1840s and 50s, all this stuff is written in books and you could study it or you could say, I'm going to subsidize these young people and others to get around and study this so that we can know what, what we should learn and not have learned. Then after the Civil War, they continue to meet. They got some elected officials now. So they begin to caucus and think about black power. This is wrong, Bennett's Black Power USA and so much and all this work. Then you come into the 1900s, the 20th century. At one point in the interview, Diddy says, you know, we, we are a, we're the new Negro. I, I said, did he just say we're the new Negro? That was the cry of Elaine Lockenham's generation 
which was like the grandchildren of those who came out of enslavement. And the phrase they used was the new Negro knows no fear. What's the next thing come out of Diddy's mouth? We're the new Negro. We're not scared of nothing. Then Charlemagne co-signed it. Yeah, we, you fearless. Yeah, we fearless. I'm thinking, okay, did you remember that from the semesters you spent at Howard? So were you paying attention in class? Or since then, have you heard that somewhere else? Because I'm thinking this is too close to what Zora Hurston and Elaine Locke and Artura Schomburg and all them, Langston Hughes and them were writing in the 1920s. It's too close to that language for you not to know that. Or is this the ancestral arc reinforcing? Because you're giving voice to the same thing they were. But without the benefit of having studied two things. One, how independent Black politics has worked prior to now, so that you can learn those lessons. And two, what role celebrities have played in that movement. And maybe I'll end with this and then we can have a little dialogue for now. I'll just say in pause for a minute. When you read Cube's plan, 13 pieces, Black responsibility is number 13. So he does everything from lending reform, federal funding, federal reserve, data and credit, uh, judicial reform, all these things, police reform, FCC licensing, all these take down the Confederate monuments, all this stuff is in there. Can't disagree with none of it. In terms of tactic, you say you're going to listen to both sides and the Biden people didn't get back to you. Did you read the Biden Lift Every Voice plan? Enough of what you're saying is in there for you to at least, because you ain't endorsed nobody, but for you to at least refuse a meeting with anybody or your people a meeting with anybody from Donald Trump's side until you see they plan. Then Trump, with COVID brain and whatever else was plaguing him before that, vomits out some type of BS in Georgia with his Negro accessories and this platinum <laughs> BS that you read. I mean, it's painful to read that shit because the whole time you're reading, he says, it's a lie, it's a lie, it's a lie. And even if we're all true, it don't mean nothing. You know, I'm sorry, Jerron Smith and them handful of black people, Katrina Pearson, whoever y'all should got. I understand y'all got to get paid. I understand y'all know it's bullshit too. But you think you got to go for yourself and maybe you can help some black people. You should ask Omarosa how that turned out. But you, you cute, at least, bro, at least don't say nothing. And don't send no quiet emissaries because their objective is to suppress the vote. They're uh, to maintain the power. Their strategy is to suppress the vote and to pick off anybody that will help them. Their tactic is going to be to get some black celebrities out there, particularly some black men, to come out here and 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 exacerbate, weaponize something that is not true, which is what a gender war. Then there shouldn't be a gender war in our community. So what do you do? You got Diddy out here. You got a uh, 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 cube out here. They can use that, amplify it. Trolls amplify it. Say it again. Kanye. Kanye. Oh my God. Yes, Kanye. And then they saying, and then and then people start writing stories. These are the genius uh, Negro uh, pundits. I love this. Uh, black men are unreliable, and uh, this could uh, further depress the black vote because black men have wavered. Black women, however, have never wavered. And I'm like, boy. <laughs> these are the black people who claim to have read some of them academics some of them my friends and i'm like really we're going down this path we're going down this path really and then of course megan pete gets on saturday night live and samples a clip from a speech malcolm x gave in the summer of 1962 after ronald stokes had been assassinated by the lapd and in that speech 
Malcolm, it's the famous speech where he asked the question, who taught you to hate yourself? Who taught you to hate you to color your skin, your hair? Who, who taught you to hate yourself from head to toe? And I'm saying, on Saturday Night Live, dress however you want, perform however you want, say however you want. But understand that those very words you got playing behind you from that speech are the critique of everything we're seeing with our eyes. <laughs> Who taught you to hate yourself? Who taught you to And then Ooh. the thing that comes out is, is the most hated woman, is the most disrespected, rather, woman. Okay. Would I debate that? Absolutely not. Because I would say that Black women and men are the most disrespected, including Native Americans, never, ever cease to forget them. But that the disrespect for Black women and Black men, there are gender dimensions of that which manifest differently. But we're not in comparative suffering politics with each other. Because the last I checked, you're not going to group me with Harvey Weinstein because we're both males. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There is no gender. What, what is this? And, and the history of our country, the fight for the 15th Amendment, my very good friend, Belithia Watkins, uh, who is at Howard University, has been studying this for years. And of course, now the 100th anniversary of the, uh, the, uh, the 19th Amendment, you got confused Black people running around here talking about the women's suffrage movement. And as Belithia writes and talks about, she was talking about yesterday, a conference we were in, Belithia's like, the white women's suffrage movement uh, was against Black women. Black women achieved the right to vote in spite of the white women's suffrage movement. And it wasn't with the passage of the 19th Amendment. It was at the same time as Black men, the Voting Rights Act, and we're still fighting for it because they're not asking your gender when they throw your ballot away. When did we get into this gender war? And then you look up and we got allies that are allies. They did a whole thing on PBS. There've been several books written about this and they trying to drop black women were in the fight too. Yeah, go back and look at the debates in the 1860s when black people are still trying to come together in formation and these white women start their suffrage movement. They founded their suffrage movement on stopping black men from getting the right to vote with the 15th amendment before white women got it. And they, in fact, Elizabeth K. Stanton, Susan B. Ann, they said that. Do not give the vote to Sambo before you give it to your wives and daughters. We're the daughters of Washington and Jefferson. Then they add in a little sideway, they're the daughters of blue blacks. Who are they? Black women. Because the journal truth been telling y'all since before the Civil War. I'm a woman, too. Is it, ain't no woman's solidarity? No, hell no, Negro. You black. So I'm saying all that to say that, you know, the white women's suffrage movement was racist. And there'll be people who will argue and I will sit with them and we'll have and we'll go chapter and verse through it and they'll find their one little letter that was written here. And that's okay. So my, my, I only have one question when those kind of debates come up. Why are you caping so hard for these people? For, set aside the documents. We can battle through the documents. And, you know, but I want to know ideologically in terms of your approach to intellectual work, why are you working so hard to cape for these people when you got to go find this stuff to, to, to rebut, and you can never do it successfully, this mountain of evidence on the other side. Because black women, I'm sorry, I should add this very important. In fact, let's just go to the, to the, to the text, shall we? Uh, let's go to the 15th time they amended this document, this flawed ass 18th century document called the Constitution. The 15th Amendment to the United States says, section one, the rights of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Section two, the Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Two things, I'll use the second one first. Section two of the 15th Amendment, 
is where Congress has the power to pass legislation to enforce the 15th Amendment, and that's the source of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So when people used to say they're going to take away our right to vote, when it, no, the, the legislation to support that right, there really isn't a right to such because you only really have to have an election. That's a conversation for another day. Maybe we do it next week, but a federal election. But if you're going to have an election, the citizens have a right to vote. Section two says pass any law you need to make sure that this happens. But going back to section one, I said I'd do the second thing first. This is the first thing. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged. Did that say men and women? Did you hear men and women, Ken? Citizens. It just said citizens. There's no gender reference in the 15th Amendment. So the question becomes, why do you need a 19th Amendment? And the 19th Amendment, of course, reads that, let's go to the 19th. The 19th Amendment says, very short, not even section, just one, two, two sentences. The right of citizens in the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. It's all written right there, just one little thing, right? Here's the question. If sex wasn't mentioned in 15, why you gotta have a 19 that mentions it? It was implied? Because judges and legislators interpreted the 15th Amendment by citizen, they mean men. they meant men in that regard. But the 14th Amendment, due process of equal protection, doesn't apply. Doesn't not apply to women, does it? Rubetta Ginsburg would say, yeah, y'all been y'all been using it like that. Yeah, that's true. And then you have the Carlene Products case, famous footnote four, that says, okay, well, you know, women, uh, Negroes and ethnic minorities. Okay, so here's the thing. The Constitution, and now I'm talking to these, uh, and they probably not watch this broadcast, but if they do, you super clowns. You, <laughs> you super ass clowns that think that people can't read plain language. I'm sorry, Uncle Clarence Thomas, your friend Sammy Alito, um, Neil McGonagall Gorsuch, Gorsuch uh, Neil McConnell Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice, I like beer, Kavanaugh, and soon to be Amy Barrett, you know, of uh, the uh, Handmaiden's Tale fame. All y'all call yourself strict constructionists. If you can find gender in the 15th Amendment or the 14th Amendment, we can have a conversation as to why you needed a 19th Amendment. You didn't need a 19th Amendment. Y'all the one that read men. And if you want to be a strict constructionist, you shouldn't need any of that. Johnny Roberts, my man, in the Parents United case, in the DCR case, where you say, the way to get rid of racial discrimination is to get rid of racial discrimination. Okay, Johnny John, John John, fellow society clown, clerk for William Winquist, helped bury him in the ground and came back. And now you're getting ready to realize your whole judicial legacy getting ready to crumble when people stop respecting the rule of law in this country because you got a 6-3 majority on the courts and people going to say, why are we listening to the courts in the first place? Oh, by the way, all my friends were saying voting don't matter because the judiciary is the same no matter who pick it. You're going to get a chance to see if that's true or not now because people are going to stop dealing with judicial supremacy. Once it's clear that the game is set up, people are going to turn away and maybe that race war will come. In this case, when Diddy is talking to Charlemagne and saying, look, if he wins, it's going to be a race war, I'm afraid. Diddy is right. 
you're going to get a chance enough if you buck. We're going to see if all y'all are real husky like that when you have to look up from your reading of Marx or reading for, of the anarchists and have to go out there in the street and fight some of these people. I suspect Diddy and them will be out there before you will. But then again, I'm just saying, maybe. So, strict constructionists can't find gender in the 15th Amendment. But those white women in the 19th century say, well, you about to get this vote to Sambo because they citizens. There's a way to fix the 15th Amendment. Why don't you now pass an amendment and say that this applies to white men and women only? Oh, y'all doing the real most. So hey, you talking about the suffrage movement and all that. And so fast forward to 2020 last week, New York Times, Megan Thee Stallion on the op-ed page saying, the black woman is the most disrespected woman. Yeah, I saw the I saw the Saturday night performance and I went and I winced as you played uh, a Malcolm quote out of context with the gold wigs and this strip club. Yeah, who taught you to hate yourself? But anyway, I, I winced. But then you're on the op-ed page saying black women have been struggling for now uh, over a century. We won the right to vote over a century ago. So here's another here's another young person that should have gone to school. That was a collective struggle. And when black men got the right to vote in a limited form in about 10 years of reconstruction in the South, the vote that they cast was often cast after consulting with sisters, wives, with communities, and the community decided how that guy was going to go in there and vote while they continued to struggle to get the women to vote because there was nothing in the Constitution barring it. It was only white supremacy. This was the tactic of the 1860s and 70s. The objective was everybody to vote. But the tactic in the short term was to get the ones who they were going to let into the ballot box into the ballot box. And that tactic involved talking to each other. It's very important to understand. None of this is abstract. So when Q, coming back to Q's plan, Q's tactic is off. The disagreement we have is with tactics. When the strategy of getting your best opponent in the, in, in the office works, in, in, in November, if we all go out here and do this, and Diddy is saying you should do it, so maybe Diddy and Cube should get on the same page. Now, Diddy, you drop your party along with that money to help all these, these young women and men who are out here doing this work. So we're going to see you bring together a meeting, right? Oh, by the way, before you tell us that, that we ain't never had no party, let's use a few blueprints, shall we? And I pulled a couple of them today. I thought I had them here. I got them somewhere. Oh, yeah, here we go. Yesterday was the 25th anniversary of the Million Man March. My goodness, I remember that day. We came down from Philly. I wrote a little piece for Ebony on the 25th anniversary. It's still on their website out there, which I'm glad. Because I remember we came down October 16, 1995 from Philly. I remember coming onto the National Mall. We came out of Union Station, the train station. We had, we had driven down to suburban Maryland and then took the Metro in. We couldn't get in the Metro. It was so many black men. We jammed up in there. Hey, bro, how you doing, bro? All right, we ride. We get off. We get off the Union Station. Get out of the train. It's the most black man I ever seen in my life. It's we done filled up. Now, now, mind you, Farrakhan been traveling around the country for a year talking about the Million Man March. We went to see him in Philadelphia. We up in Philly. The place is packed. I mean, ten thousand people in this arena over by University of Pennsylvania. We over here, man. Million Man March. We going. We going. That was probably, I don't know, January, maybe February 95. He'd been going for a year. Now, while the, the, the white press ain't covering none of this, because the white press then and now don't know the nation of Islam exists, and they think it's just Louis Farrakhan, which I just, we, black people laugh. I mean, the Muslim, 
we we treat in some ways black america treats the nation of islam the way that kenyans were treating the kenyan land freedom army that the white people called the mau mau during in colonial kenya in 1950 the sisters washing clothes in the british house where they got her as a virtual peon working and the white man comes up and says oh uh, Karish, do you know about this Mau Mau? They're, they're kidnapping uh, British and they say they're going to throw the whites out of Kenya. And then the sister says, no mama, I don't know them. Yes. Then that night, she <laughs> going to the meeting. You know what I'm saying? So people say to us, uh, the Nation of Islam, what do you think about the Nation of Islam? Yeah. Are you? I'm not a member of the Nation of Islam. Then at night, we all at the Farrakhan speak. So Farrakhan talk, so ain't nobody white checking for the Million Man March. And then the Negroes start coming out in the press and their fringe publications. You know, I'm concerned because it's patriarchal and the Nation of Islam is patriarchal. And I'm thinking to myself, I got issues with the Nation of Islam as well. Guess who I talk to them with? People in the Nation of Islam. My man Omar Ali Bay in Cleveland when I was coming up. Sister Callie and uh, uh, and, and uh, in, in, in Columbus, Ohio, Ohio. Callie X, you know, sitting talking to her. But where are we talking about it? Over her house with her husband. They making fish boats, and we debating and talking about gender in the Nation of Islam. Why? Because Callie X is a human being. Y'all know so much about patriarchy in the nation, and you got all these black women. I guess they all just stupid, huh? Nah, you don't want to do that. But you will write a book talking about it. Yeah. Okay. Right, Ooh. Ava Muhammad, general counsel of the Nation of Islam. My third year in law school, I was president of the Black Law Student Association. Anybody remember, still ain't forgiven us because we had as our closing balsa banquet speaker, the first year, I was, I was president two years, second and third year. The first year we had uh, C. Vernon Mason because we couldn't get Alton Maddox. Alton was tied up, so we got C. Vernon Mason. This is during Tawana Brown. And white people was like, but Tawana Brown, he said, hey, hey, hell. Well, actually, this is kind of like hell. We're going to tell you to go to hell, but since we kind of live, we're going to create a little heaven in the middle of this hell. Yes, we're inviting C. Vernon. And then the next year, we had Abel Muhammad, counsel, general counsel, the Nation of Islam. Oh, they lost their minds. If you ever had a mind, you're going to have to lose it. So I'm saying, so all you people critiquing patriarchy in the nation, which is a legitimate conversation, have it with some people in the nation. But black people act like, oh, the nation? No, we don't know. The and then we came out of that train station. Them brothers packed shoulder to shoulder in the train station. We emptied out like opening a can into the air. All these cats poured out. Now, mind you, this is about five o'clock in the morning. No, no, about maybe six o'clock in the morning on October the 16th, 1995. A sea of people out there, brothers. Then we start walking toward the Capitol. You almost got to get to this, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, maybe 10 minutes into the walk. And the Capitol is easily walked from Union Station, but to show you how many people there were already, it's four day in the morning. We get, finally, we done worked our way, it's maybe about 10 of us. We worked our way up to see the Capitol just as the sun was rising. That's how long it took. And as the sun rises, of course, all the good Muslims know and those who know anything about Islam, you make salat five times a day. The first prayer is the daybreak prayer. And when we heard that Muslim prayer call at sunrise, and looked out and saw that sea of black hair and little boys and older men and people. I mean, my God, there's, I've never, and as the sun came up, the sun was up after the prayer and Natty said, we're gonna start the programming. We looked over and coming up North Capitol, these probably maybe about a dozen across young black men marching like Toy Toy in South Africa. On one side of them and the other side of them, a single line stretching back of young black women with their fists in the air. Come to find out, 
those were the students from Howard. The women had marched the brothers down to the march, and when they got in, they peeled off and went back. Mm. Let me tell y'all something. If you wasn't there, you don't know nothing about it. I don't care. Rosa Parks spoke that day. Dorf Height spoke that day. Or women in the crib. Queen Mother Moore. Repar- I used to be writing books about rep- reparations. Your lips, I want you to sew them shut on this question until you deal with the people who have lived this struggle. I'm coming to Cube. I'm going to tie this ice cube in a minute because this is the time. Remember now, this is only a few days after OJ got off. If anybody, clue, uh, uh, anybody who's unclear about OJ Simpson, because there's a lot, it's a lot of non-black people hanging with us now. And I'm glad because this is for everybody, right? But it's coming from a, like August Wilson. We coming out of our experience, but everybody benefits, right? So it's interesting because, uh, like August Wilson said, I don't write for a black audience or a white audience. I write out of a black experience, and people find their humanity where they find it. Very important. I'm writing out of my truth. So out of that, I'm gonna say this. This is a couple of weeks after OJ gets off. Not even two weeks after OJ is found not guilty. I was saying, how could y'all support? Hey, 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 hey. This was never about Orenthal James Simpson at the projects of San Francisco or his brother AC Callen. This wasn't about, this was never about them. This was about every black woman who thought you cut and hung from a tree in the 19th, 20th century. This is from every black child who you robbed of her parents before you sold her into sex slavery. This is about every black man who thought you cut her tongue, you cut out or Emmett, every Emmett Till. So see, OJ is a stand there for them. We know that nigga will sell out. We talking about it in the beauty parlor. But what we not gonna do is have that conversation with you. Not guilty, yay. Did he cut their throat? What that got to do with it? That y'all don't understand. These are two different conversations. And so all that energy was out there. And so then, and those sisters from Howard that went back to campus, that was, that was part of the dual objective of that day, which I'm about to show you in about 30 seconds. But there were many women who came and didn't. Yeah, they, they came down there to see all these brothers. So people thinking it was only men, that ain't true. I'm gonna tell you right now. And rather than any black man saying, sis, what you doing out here? You should go home. I didn't hear that. All I heard was, excuse me, sister. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Hey, how you doing, sis? Come on now. We know the thing that was said, and we know the thing as it is lived. And the thing as it is said is rarely the same as the thing as it is lived. So especially the young people now, especially these scholars that are writing about things like this and patriarchy, don't write about what you don't know about. Talk to people who were there, talk to people who are in this work, and then have the integrity to be balanced. And don't just try to drop the theory you took in grad school under these professors, many of them are, don't look like you to try to get you to wrestle with some issues and they problem. They got their own objectives. But well, what the of them have their own problems as it relates to gender. Exactly. Oh, yes. Now, see, that's where they don't want to go. Yeah, we start with the fairy tale. We're not going there today. No, that's all right. We, we'll get to that. In fact, we can we do that one on European fairy tales, Snow White, Cinderella, and all that. Women ain't never been respected in European cultures. And we've picked up a lot of bad habits since we've been in our captivity. So Ooh. anyway, so I'm saying, so yeah, disrespecting black women, Megan, you're absolutely right. And we have to figure out how to solve that. Here's how we don't solve it, however. On the page of the New York Times where somebody gonna come up and critique us, and this is an A and B conversation. You see your way out of it. <laughs> and C in this case means the color white. So one of the document, the, the only document that came out of the Million Man March was, was written collectively by the Million Man March Day of Absence Organizing Committee. I said 30 seconds, it was about 60. This is the document. The Million Man March Day of Absence Mission Statement, Washington, D.C., October 16, 1995, the official document, 
these are the two parts. Part one, all the men come to D.C. Part two, everybody else stay at home. Don't go to work. <laughs> Don't go to class. <laughs> so there was a two-part thing. And then when they had the Million Woman March in Philadelphia, I was very happy to be the guy. My godson, Khalil, who's now getting a Ph.D. in physics at Louisiana State, came to Howard undergrad. His grandfather worked at Morehouse, was the provost of Cheney, interim president. His, uh, his mother, Rebecca Dixon, who's professor at Tennessee State, we were all in grad school together. My job on the day of the Million Woman March, which also had day of absence, was while all the sisters went to the Parkway in Philadelphia from all over the country, Philae Chinyesu, who, uh, who organized that, Philae used to have a shop on South Street in Philly. My job was to stay at the house with Khalil and all the kids. So I'm babysitting all the kids at the house while they at the million women. In other words, this ain't never been about men versus women. Get a grip. Come on, black people. So I'm saying, all right, so the million man march, you know, that's when Winnie Mandela came. See, I'm saying, damn, I want to see Winnie Mandela. That's not my job today. This my this I was here in 95. This my job in like 97 with day of absence. You understand? So, all right, so that haven't been said. This document. And mind you, Cube in 95, by 95, Cube is over with the political. The nation sitting, talking with Angela Davis about this question of gender. There's a famous uh, discussion between Angela Davis and Ice Cube. I was looking for, oh, this is one of the books on hip hop that is used. Can't Stop, Won't Stop, Jeff Chang's book. Uh, it's interesting because in this book, he talks, he, has, he, he divides it by region. Um, in fact, he, he has a chapter called All in the Same Gang, where he's talking about, among other things, this question of uh, Farrakhan, the Nation of Islam. It's actually a very good book for trying to get at some of the issues that you were raising earlier as it relates to what happened in hip hop. I wish I could hurry up and find it, but I won't be able to do it right now. Um, but he does talk about, hold up for a second, let me see. The Rodney King Rebellion in chapter. In fact, this is the this is the uh, the section. Stakes is high. Uh, stakes is high. Nineteen ninety two to two thousand one. This is where you get. He talks about what happened with uh, with Angela Davis sitting to talk with Ice Cube around this question of gender. Very important. Very important work. And then chapter nineteen of that. New World Order. Oh, wow. What you were saying. Now look on his head on Diddy's head. The star and crescent of sorts. That's a rip on the nation of Islam. But look at that shirt. I am the American dream. Charlemagne asked him about, so what happened since voter died? Because what people don't remember is that voter died stuff in 2004. In 2004, Diddy had this voter die campaign when John Kerry ran president. This book came out in 2005, by the way. What's the strategy of voter die? We got to vote. Then Diddy tells Charlemagne in this interview from yesterday, well, you know, I kind of got tricked. You know, I feel like those politicians got in office and they didn't represent us. They didn't they didn't do for us. Okay, see now that's a fundamental misunderstanding of how parties work. An independent party uses the election as a tactic and then part of, as part of a larger strategy. Now the next step in the tactic is once they get in, you celebrate that night and the next morning all of y'all are over there like, let's go. <laughs> but see the problem is because you don't understand how this works. You think the election is the finish line. No, the, the election is the point of departure. This is tactic, but you got to have objectives and strategies. So the Million Man March lays out objectives and strategies for work after the march. 
There it is. The significance of the project, challenge to ourselves, atonement, reconciliation, responsibility. That's point 13, by the way, Cube, in your platform. The challenge to the government, the challenge to corporations, the day of absence, continuing practices and continuing practices and projects. All right. What comes after that? Let's go to page 17. This is for Cube and everybody else, right? Who didn't know. Point 39, central to sustaining and institutionalizing this process is the follow-up development of an expanded Black political agenda and the holding of Black political, convention, Black political convention to forge this agenda for progressive political change. And then it goes on to go through a point. They go through points all the way to point uh, O. And people say, well, the Nation of Islam was never for voting. One of the things was, here we go, B. This is B. In fact, I should just say, in fact, I'll just show it so people, because people like, I, I found out now, Karen, people like to pause the video and look at it. So, because y'all might not be able to find this. That's page 17, follow-up development of the political agenda. B is a massive voting, I'm sorry, massive voting registration of Black people as independents using, oh, did he? He's an independent. Okay, look, bro, this from 25 years ago. This is from 20, and now, of course, this is just words, as you say, it's a plan, but how do you execute the plan? Let me just, I'll just keep going so people can kind of pause it, read for themselves, all the things that went. Conrad Rell helped work this. A number of other people helped wrote it who are now ancestors. And then we go. That's it. Now, watch this. They had the meeting. They had the meeting. The big political meeting. And at that meeting, they had the meeting in 2000. Well, no, actually the meeting, they had meetings up, no, had the meeting on September 27th, 1996. Yes, than a year later, after having regional meetings, everybody came together in St. Louis. The National Political Convention, sponsored by the National African-American Leadership Summit and the Million Man March Incorporated, because they had a corporation. One thing about the nation, Diddy, Q, we're not talking about celebrity platforms, putting together a website, tweeting out a plan, making an announcement with Charlemagne, making a lot of noise, like vote or die, and then what happened? No. With the nation, love them, hate them, in between. This is one thing them Negroes gonna do. And I'm saying that with all due respect. I saw the minister at the uh, at the uh, last reparations conference in Cobra had in Detroit uh, last year, in the summer. All of them. Leonard Muhammad, shout out to all them cats. Abel Muhammad, listen. There are four black lawyers who I said, if I was ever going to practice law, they would be my model. Two men and two women. The men, Chokwe Lumumba, ancestor. The great Automatix, not an ancestor. Ava Muhammad still walks the earth. And the great Nkichi Taifa, who just published her book, Black Power, Black Lawyer. Here's the physical copy of the book. I wrote the foreword to this book. This sister right here, one of the baddest human beings walking the earth. My point is this. Ava's one of those. So shout out to all them, Nation of Islam. One thing about the nation, if they tell you they're going to do something, they done already planned it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So Million Man March, we knew it was going to be a Million Man March. Why? Because Farrakhan said it. Now, you don't necessarily want to see how they make the sausage all the time. Because understand, when you say paramilitary, or Megan, when you say the black woman is the most disrespected black woman on earth, you're not going into the Nation of Islam with the MGT, the Muslim Girls in Training, or the Fruit of Islam, and disrespect black women. Now, we could talk about patriarchy, we could talk about issues, but one thing, sis, Cats shooting you in the feet, all this kind of thing. You want a brother like that tightened up? We all know some cats that can do it. Many of them wear bow ties. And we know some sisters that can do it too in the MGT. So before we go out here in the pages of the New York Times talking stuff to our open enemies who don't care nothing about none of us, 
probably the first step we need to do is find those organizations and institutions that have always cared. And Cube knew who that was in 95. Cube knew who that was in 96. That's what got him in trouble with the, uh, the Hollywood and mass media entertainment complex. Shortly thereafter, who does Cube turn to into? Are we there yet? Uh, who does Cube turn in? Right along. In other words, Cube gets family friendly. But if you go back to the Cube of the early 90s with the Nation of Islam cats on his records and Black Korea, and I, every time I had to go get an effing brew, I got to go down to the store with the two Oriental one penny counting mother uh, that raise a lot of ruckus making. I mean, he got the whole thing sample from. Oh no, that's a different Cube than Are We There Yet? Than Barbershop. But here's the thing Cube never changed. Cube wants what's best for black people, but the tactics seem to be suffering from amnesia because those same organizations produce this. This is the national agenda. Mm. They had the Million Family March in the year 2000. Public policy issues, analyses, and programmatic plan of action, 2000 to 2008. This is the document that comes out of the meeting that they said they were going to have after this event the previous year. We got agendas. And guess what? This one draws on the expertise, Diddy. We never had no black independent. <laughs> Bro, this one draws on the expertise of women and men who participated in Gary 1972, who helped found MBIPA, the National Black, uh, not, not MBIPA is the uh, Board of Education for People of African Ancestry, MBIP, the National Independent Black Political Party, Ron Daniels and them. In other words, we've always had people come together but the people who were doing that were chiefly people in the in the streets organizing so you know if you want to look at Opal Tometi if you want to look at Brittany Patnat if you want to look at Alicia Garza who was talking with Ice Cube rolling head them all talking to each other I'm saying Black Lives Matter the grandparents of Black Lives the parents of Black Lives Matter are this they were joined with the grandparents of Black Lives Matter who then had an agenda one of the challenges we have is how do we galvanize out that momentum so that we can talk about objectives in the context of strategies and tactics that have worked before and that have failed before so we can learn so because these things are not changing in terms of how power reacts to a demand for it they don't change the last thing i'll say about it in that context is that the role of the entertainer is clear the celebrity Charlamagne asked diddy should we be the ones doing it? He's like, nah, but I got the money. I got the platform. So you fund this. People say, well, would that be the first time? Hell no. Let's end with a flurry of conversation about that. These are earnest, uninformed conversations some of these celebrities are having. Kanye and them, like you said, Cube, you know, I mean, you know, Diddy. Uh, people want to do something. They have resources that reflect that nexus of the commodification of culture and the external market interests that have done it. But it has displaced both the institutions that we've had in our community that have been eroded by perpetual assault. Because some of these people end up locked up. Some of these people end up getting, you know, and then there are external interests that want to turn us in opposite directions. Of course, the Democratic Party wants the Negroes to be faithful. Of course, the Republican Party wants enough Negroes to vote for them and not vote to keep them in power. Those are external interests. An independent party uses tactics and strategy to advance themselves. What is the role of celebrity? Well, let's think about it. One of the early celebrities, Paul Robeson. Here's, here's, his, here's his autobiography, Here I Stand. 
by uh, introduction by his friend Lloyd Brown. This is published in 1958. This is one of the first books Nick Cannon and I read when Nick came to Howard. And it is one of the books that gave birth to what he called Cannon's class. Because Nick came and Nick said, look, because you know Nick out there. Nick went and interviewed Kanye. Nick taught, Nick and Nipsey Hustle like this. You know, he finished Nipsey Hustle. He's finishing it on uh, Sebi, his documentary. You know, Nick, one thing about Nick, he's going to be loyal. So uh, yeah, I'm going to try to, you know, and then he interviews Professor Grip because that's his friend. Next thing you know, he's getting assaulted for being anti-Semitic. So he's, a, I mean, so here's the thing. Nick comes to Howard and said, look, I'm a celebrity. Kids know me. I'm out here. But since I'm out here and I got a platform, I don't open my mouth about something I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm in school. People thought this was a publicity stunt. And I'm here to tell you, Greg Carr talking to Karen Hunter, Professor Carr, Professor Hunter, in this conversation that Nick Cannon maybe missed two weeks the whole time he was at Howard of me not seeing him eyeball to eyeball sitting or whatever book we said we was going to read that week. That's what we did. So we read Robeson. I said, well, you need to look at some biographies and autobiographies if you can get them. I like autobiographies better because that's them telling the story of people who you want to be like, who you want to move in the space of. So we sat and started reading Paul Robeson. Robeson said, the artist got to make a choice. You're going to use your craft for your people or you're going to use it for somebody else. He said, I made my choice. I had no alternative. Paul Robeson is a citizen of the world. So that's one. How does Robeson support civil rights? Robeson starts organizations, freedom newspaper, the Council for African Affairs. He helps join it. As the government attacks Paul Robeson, some of the Negroes back up off him. No, nah, because he's a communist or whatever. And so they back away from him. The people, the, all, his conure, all his concert dates dry up. So where can he go to sing? He sings in churches. He sings in the black community. His brother Ben, Bethel, uh, AME Zion Church in New York. That's where we had the last big reparations meeting a couple of years ago, where all the coalition came together, gave birth to the coalition that Ron Daniels heads. Uh, you know, that was that that's Ben Ropes and his brother's church, the black community. As Kwame Trace, Lee Carmichael said, you take care of the people, the people will take care of you. Ropes said, I'm an entertainer. Yeah, brother, but you learned like two dozen languages. You travel through Africa, your wife is London, is an anthropologist. She done gone through and written books, all this stuff, man. African journey, she's organizing black women in Africa. Y'all a little bit more than celebrities. Yes, because we understand we got platform. We not just jumping out here talking. We are going to show you that this platform means nothing unless we can use this culture. So who, of course, does he deeply influence among many others? Harry Belafonte, who still walks the earth. Diddy, call the brother. Q, talk to the man. In other words, Y'all need to just sit and listen. You ain't got to agree with everything, but you need to understand. So what does Belafonte do? While y'all out here seeing me on TV with Nat Cole and these cats and I'm singing, Dale, yeah, is this a check? All right, I'm breaking off 10% for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Conference. Come get this suitcase of money. He was, just, just take it, just take it, just take it. In other words, when Diddy tells Charlemagne, I I'm more funded. Okay, that sounds like what celebrities used to do. Now, there's also being able to use your platform to create culture that is overtly political. Megan, I'm not mad at you. I'm not mad at you for trying. What I'd be mad is if you stay in that same place once you know better. So get books like this, How It Feels to Be Free. It's from Fettelstein's book, Black Women Entertainers and the Civil Rights Movement. There's Miriam McCabe, Mama Africa. Everybody ain't gotta be like her, although in the case of people like India Irie, yeah, you looking at people like that, you know? But this is something very interesting. Let me just turn to a little page in here. They get into this whole conversation of Cicely Tyson, Abby mm. Lincoln, Diane Carroll, Lena Horn, and how during the Johnson and then the Nixon administrations, 
they try to use some of these images of them or television and popular culture to say black people are making progress, but they're also political. But that made me think of a sister who we both will probably think of in this sense. Remember the sister who uh, they had a luncheon and Linda Johnson showed up at the luncheon going to lecture black people on don't be mean to the police, support your local police. And this sister got up and was like, nah, wait, before you, in fact, let me just read her words. That would be, of course, Eartha Kitt. This is the second autobiography that Eartha Kitt wrote. <laughs> Eartha Kitt, along with me. Eartha Kitt is like, look, you came to this. L Linda Baines Johnson wife had a luncheon. Then she writes a book about it. Says, Mrs. Johnson, this, this is Eartha Kitt. Eartha Kitt says, Mrs. Johnson writes in her book that because of her nervousness, she ate very little. She also notes that I too ate very little. Talking about Eartha. And she was right. She says, I eat infrequently and very lightly. I wish I could do her voice. And only when I'm hungry. I wasn't hungry. And besides, the prospect of participating in a seminar on crime in the streets wasn't conductive to a hearty appetite. The seminar was on crime in the streets because the streets on fire. You understand? 67, 68, the long hot summers, right? So they're going to have a, a, a seminar and a luncheon and Lady Bird Johnson going to be there to talk. And then here come Lyndon Johnson in person. Right? And she says, right in the middle of the first speaker's talk, he jumps in with the cameras and in walks Lyndon. She says, after he finished talking about combating, combating crime starts in the home, he says he closely related about how each night he and his family listened to a particular radio program, which the announcer signed off by asking parents, where are your children tonight? Eartha Kitt says she's waiting for him to finish. And before he could get out, she said, this is what she said. She said, Mr. President, I said, what are we going to do about delinquent parents? She said, those who have to work and who are too busy to look after their children. Don't you think it might be more appropriate for the children to ask parents, where are you? Because taxes are so heavy, both parents often have to work and are forced to leave their children alone. Then she goes on to talk about, you came in here lecturing us. What about the structures that create these conditions? And you're talking about children behave. I'm talking about teenagers out here in the community don't have any jobs. What about the, the structure that created joblessness? And it, Eartha Kitt goes off. Now, did Q, if Q, if you go into a meeting with Jerry Kushner, before y'all start talking about that one-step program and Van Jones and now y'all patting yourselves on the back, breaking your elbows, dude, I want you to talk like to Jerry Kushner, like you talk to us on death certificate and America's Most Wanted, because you were crystal clear at that point. I mm. thought, man, my good. You know, as you said, should I just wait for help from Trump? I'm sorry, from Bush? <laughs> in other words, so what changed, Q? Nothing. I don't think anything changed because you want the same objective as all of us. Your tactics change. Let's keep going very quickly. Um, and didn't Eartha Kitt get blackballed after after confronting? Didn't, didn't she lose her career for a minute? She sure did. Took that L. Eartha, and that's what you got to be prepared to do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's absolute. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. In fact, let's. I'm just going to deal with a few more sisters before I go to the brothers because, again, very mindful of the fact that this is a community conversation. And so let's just go. Let's go back a generation. Who was one of the people who was a blueprint for the way Eartha Kitt moved through the world? Josephine Baker. Mm. I, I, and there, Josephine Baker has a couple of books. There are books written about her. Her son wrote a book. Jean Claude. I have all those books. But I picked this one because it's a graphic novel. Remember uh, one time, one I think maybe the first time we went live, somebody asked about children's books and stuff. 
I love the graphic novels. There's a whole section here on the March on Washington, 1963. A lot of people don't know, Josephine Baker, that's how she looked when she spoke at the march. In fact, there's a quote. You know, friends, that I do not lie to you when I tell you that I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents, but couldn't, I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee, and that made me mad. Then she goes off in the speech. Wait, the do you speech. have that memorized? What is that? Do you have that memorized? No, no, no. I'm reading it. Oh, okay. All I'm right. Reading it off the bat. Oh, no, 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 no. But she's, but, but she talks about all these things. Remember, Josephine Baker came out of East St. Louis, Illinois. Josephine Baker survived the white riot of 1919, the race riot in East St. Louis, Illinois, in 1919, the summer that uh, that James Wilson Johnson called the Red Summer. Everybody now is looking at, um, y'all saw, if you watch uh, Lovecraft, you saw the Tulsa thing go down, right? And you see they living in Chicago. So that whole question of white violence. I mean, I was watching Sunday night and I said to myself, I think I tweeted, I said, you know, this is a good reminder y'all watching. Some debts are blood debts. Y'all ain't never in this country ever going to get out that blood debt. Some things uh, can, well, must never be forgotten. And then some things must never be forgiven as far as I'm concerned. But Josephine Baker lived through that as a little girl and escaped, went all over the world. And she was living in France. In fact, this was a military uniform that she uh, got as a result of entertaining and helping the French resistance during World War II. Yeah, so there are models. She was a spy for them. And oh, she was And she, she was. Um, crazy story is that she was married twice, I think, before the age of 16. Married and divorced twice. You think about somebody growing up in, in the wake of that horror, because there was a bloody 1919, 1920, very bloody. She comes from poverty, comes out of this space. I think she was, uh, her mom died or something yes. early. Yes. And, and, and you think about a, a, a girl married at 12. Is that marriage consensual? 14, is that consensual? Come on. But then as the wherewithal to not stay in there and got up out of this country and became not just rich and famous, but also an activist. That's a story that we just saw a little bit of in Lovecraft. And there've been pictures about Josephine Baker. That story, we need to tell that story. Karen, that's one of your projects. That's yes, one of our collective projects. That Josephine Baker, and you're right. What was the sister? Was it Lynn Whitfield did the Josephine Baker story? But it's got to be told on a much broader scale. That, in fact, that should probably just be a, a like I start to say a mini series. Hell, that could be a several season series, the Josephine Baker story. Because you're absolutely right. And you talk about, and in fact, young people, if y'all want to jump in and put some soundtrack, and if you want to play, I'm a savage. Yeah, play that under the soundtrack as Josephine is walking her pet panther down the Champs-Élysées in Paris. I, that's a savage. <laughs> so I ain't mad at you, Megan. I ain't mad at y'all. You know what I'm saying? Understand you have four mothers. And, and, and just like we just heard you say, Karen, just like y'all heard Professor Hunter say, these are women who live their lives in a way like Robeson and men who live their lives in a way where their art, their craft, their celebrity, and their politics were one thing. And they moved forward. And in case you think that there's a certain politics and respectability going on there, uh, Saturday Night Live with Megan and, and all, all the dancers dressed with the very short clothes, you still had more clothes on than Josephine Baker had on when she did the banana dance. So let's be clear. This ain't, this ain't about how many clothes you got on a night. And of course, Beyonce. Remember Beyonce reprised the banana dance? So let me just mention a couple of others because there are many others we could talk about. 
Um, celebrities involved in political formation, usually, usually, I'll do a couple, I'll end with the last one, which is another book Nick and I read. In fact, this might have been the first one we read together. Um, usually they are organized around protest politics. So, for example, Gil Scott Heron, this is his memoir, The Last Oh no, we lost Dr. Carl. Come on back. Come on back, Dr. Carl. Gil Scott back, right? yes. yes, you are. Gil Scott Heron, The Last Holiday. He goes on tour with the. Oh, all right, we're going to do this while we wait for him to come back. You know what? I'm going to take some questions. Oh, by the way, while we wait for Dr. Carl, maybe his phone is out or his internet. He'll be back. Uh, drop some questions in the comments. We're going to finish up the show. I'm going to stay over maybe another 15 minutes and we'll get some questions in. Uh, just drop them in. I have somebody that's going to pull them and I'll read them uh, here live during this while we wait for him to come back. If not, then we'll just end it because I don't know. The devil is a liar though because I think that this was powerful. So I hope he comes back because I don't want to do this by myself. Matter of fact, I'm just a conduit. I'm sitting here every day just on Saturdays waiting for Dr. Carr to come in because I have questions, but most of it is just him talking. And I'm just so grateful that we have this platform and all of the people that donated um, stickers and things. I know folks were bugging out over the 150,000 COP, the pesos, which is a blessing. It's 38 bucks and 100,000 pesos. Um, it's a blessing. But um, this is something that we created uh, for you. This is the gift that we're giving. I see Dr. Carr is back here. I'm going to add him back to the stream. But while while we were waiting for you to come back, I don't know what that is. I was going through, um, you were talking about uh, the all of the celebrities and stuff. And I was going through my, my, my mom gave me a box from my dad after he passed away. And I, mm. I, didn't, I didn't open it because, you know, it was painful. You know, my father had a, a lot of stuff, some books. Um, I had a little bit of a flood, so it was about to get wet. So I had to like get, you know, get the box from getting wet. And I'm I'm watching a Toni Morrison documentary on Hulu, and she talks about this. Oh, this the Black Book, yes. And I was, I said, that looks. I grew up with this book in my house, and I found it in the box, and I was like, no, this was a Toni Morrison project. So I'm just. I was just gonna stall while I waited for you to come back. I was about to tell the story of that, but you're here now. So go ahead, continue. Why don't you tell us? No, tell us because that book, Tony Morrison is at Random House as an editor. My very good friend, Dana Williams, who's dean of the graduate school at Howard, uh, has been working on a book of Tony on about, about Tony Morrison at that period when she produces the black book. She's an editor at Random House. She's promoted in part because Charles Harris, the late Charles Harris, now an ancestor, came to DC to run Howard University Press. This is when Howard was very serious about becoming a black university. The students had demanded it. Andrew Billingsley, who just turned 93. Our brother, Paul Coates, is publishing uh, an anthology on Howard University in the 1970s. Andrew Billingsley was vice president for academic affairs. I was very honored to help pull the conference together where all these old heads came together and told these stories. And they, he hired, they hired about 200 black faculty, Joyce Ladner, Ron Walters, so many others. And they said, they're going to create the black university. Ms. Morrison was promoted at Random House because they got uh, Charles Harris to leave Random House, who was black, to start Howard University Press. Because they said this should be one HBCU with the university press. We're tired of black people talking about black stories. And they published it white university presses. So still tired, by the way. Damn it. So <laughs> at any rate, Toni Morrison gets in as editor. She is the editor for Muhammad Ali's The Greatest. 
She is the editor for Angela Davis, autobiography. She is the editor of Ivan Van Sertimus, They Came Before Columbus. She edits and publishes her friends like Tony K. Bambara, uh, like Gail Jones, Corregidora, all this fiction. She puts together the Black Book. And that Black Book is a hell of a book. Tell us some more about it, Karen, because some people may not know about the Black Book. By the way, it has been reissued. There's been some anniversary editions, but that's an important book. And so many people grew up with it in the house. Everything is in here. Every everything. It was like the Black Encyclopedia before there was one, and it's just everything. There's even a newspaper clip in here. Oh, one of my stories from when I had my little column. Can you see it? Oh, you can't. Can you? No, see no. It? Come, come, move, move, move back to us. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Uh, yeah, it, when I used to be at the dinner, look you know, at you, can't. <laughs> there you go. You ain't gonna pause it. I'm gonna pause it too. <laughs> no, don't you pause that. Uh, I mean, everything's in here from the the mystery. I don't know. Can you can you see? Yeah. Oh yes. Yes. I mean, but but I never knew this was Toni Morrison until I watched the documentary. Low and key, I'm like, she real low key with it. So yeah, but this is what you're talking about. There's a responsibility if you're sitting. Come in on a, now. To to not just honor your ancestors, but to further. And when I when we started this, I said we're so close, and I know we're close because of all of the pressure and the pushback coming. But this is the responsibility, and, and we're having this conversation today, not to to cast aspersions against Ice Cube and Puff not and at all. Kanye or Megan, but to to call people to a higher purpose. That's right. And, and to to. To be to humble themselves because there's a lot of hubris That's in funny. these in these utterances that are happening. There's a lot of arrogance and hubris. And listen, we all have, have, have healthy egos, but at the end of the day, man, what what are we doing here? What, what is are your we doing? What's our if, if it's truly black freedom, as Sonya Sanchez, what do it free us? If that's truly the 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 goal, yes. then some of us are gonna have to sit back. Like when you left this screen, I was like, oh no. I'm not going to continue this conversation. Oh, and you I'm, got it though. No, I know, but this, I mean, this, I mean, because because that's what I mean. The Black Book, for example, look at. Can, I don't know if you can find it quick. There's a picture in there of Shirley Temple. She's at the banks of a river, dance in one of them Shirley Temple movies where she's a little white girl and the black people are all dancing with her. And there's a quote by Henry Dumas on that page. And I love that quote. Henry Dumas was a writer who was killed in the New York City subways, who was one of the great writers. He wrote a book called, well, this collection called Ark of Bones. And it really will be something. I mean, she's got all kind of quotes. Like I said, the book is full of everything. Oh, by the way, another person she edited and shepherded to print was Huey Newton, his book, Revolutionary Suicide. Mm -hmm. Toni Morrison was the editor for that book. So to your point, we once you get in a space, you open the door for everybody else. I don't know if you can find it, but it is, it's all right, because I, I, I mean, I, I know the quote. But in the section, I think, because in this section, I'm sure it's in this section with this. There it is. That's the quote. Oh, is I'm it? Sorry, it ain't Shirley Temple. My bad. No, it's not. My bad. Okay. Do you see? Y'all see that right now. They can pause and read it. But will you read that for us, Karen? One of the greatest roles ever created by Western man has been the role of Negro. One of the greatest actors to play the role has been the nigger. How about that? Now y'all think about that. When we start talking about our objectives as if black power is about America, as if it's about our citizenship 
and all these people can't get citizenship or they've run over the rights of people like the Native Americans? If we start talking about our objectives in terms of the right to be a millionaire, the right to have more and flex and all this kind of thing, the good life and all that, then we have we have entered an artificial identity. What Henry Dumas is saying there is the greatest role ever created by Western man was the Negro. In other words, the anti-human, the non-human, the person who doesn't have their own thoughts and objectives, the person who works for us. He's the greatest person to ever play that role was the Negro. Meaning what? The people who believed it. <laughs> See, understand, white kids buy most of the hip hop. But then, and they go to the fraternity parties, sorority parties, dressed up in the jerseys, and they say for shizzle, like, uh, you know, Snoop told Martha Stewart she shouldn't say in the commercial. It's all fun and games. And now we're past childhood. We're mature. Now we take over the companies. Y'all still niggas. Meanwhile, we think we all friends. Are they know our culture? Nah, it's consumer market. You believed it? Oh, I see. So now you out here running in the streets trying to figure out which of these people you should talk to. Then you get caught out there. And now when pressed for detail, you look frustrated. Of course, not mad because the role of the Negro, the role of the figment of the American imagination has always been the problem. And the niggerization of the people who believe that role, this is what Dumas is talking about. So everybody I've mentioned so far, we've talked about so far, Josephine Baker, Earth King, they are citizens of the world. And we're going to end with a couple of others. Mention this brother because Bob Marley, a citizen of the world, in fact, this is Bob Marley's mother's writing on him. This is Cedelia Marley Booker, who is the mother of Bob Marley, who talks about, among other things, the fact that Bob Marley got involved in politics in his native Jamaica. There's a very famous concert in 1978 where the cats are in the street warring between the two political parties, Michael Manley and uh, of the uh, People's National Party and the JLP, the Jamaica Labor Party, Edward Siaga. Some of y'all know about the, 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 the big concert. Marley had gotten shot. You got thugs in the street. They shooting people. In this, in the, up in the, in the, in the, in the run up to this election, Marley has his unity concert in Kingston and makes both of these men come to the stage and join hands in a show of unity. Does that solve everything? No. However, it does show that the the culture keepers have a responsibility. And in that island, we all black. We ain't we're gonna stop killing each other, right? One love. Y'all come up here. Y'all come up here. Bob Marley forces them. Gil Scott Heron says Marley was supposed to be on the tour with Stevie Wonder in 1980, the Hotter Than July tour. Wonder records a song on that album, Happy Birthday. Y'all gonna make Martin Luther King's birthday a national holiday. He meets with Coretta Scott King, what can I do? Well, we need, to this day, 40 years later, black people, happy birthday to you. Then some Negro, happy birthday to you. There wouldn't be no happy birthday song except Stevie Wonder said, look, I ain't a politician. But when I sniff, everybody starts sniffing like I sniff. So I got the platform. I got the gift. What can I do? You know what? How in July? Before we finish, Master Blaster, all that. It's going to be a smash. You know, I'm Stevie Wonder after all. Who, by the way, we ran left Motown this week. Crazy. Yeah. Oh, my God. At 70, his own, started his own platform. Come and on. released two singles on it. Come on. Never too late. He tried to be like Karen Hunter. That's all right. This I don't know. Up. Like Stevie Wonder, he's a Taurus like you are. Come on. Mm -hmm. Yes, 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 yes. We yes. Taurus, is no question. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Wonder calls 
One of these people called Gil Scott here. Why? Bob Marley is too sick to perform. Marley ends up dying of cancer not too long after that. He performs in Zimbabwe for the Zimbabwean liberation movement because the people of Zimbabwe take one of the songs that Bob Marley recorded called Zimbabwe that he recorded in support of the liberation struggle in Zimbabwe. And he said, they said, we were playing this when we was fighting them crackers in the bush, them Rhodesians. By the way, some of them people fighting in the bush in Rhodesia against the people of Zimbabwe. Some of those people were veterans of the United States military who after Vietnam went over there to say, we're going to suppress these Negroes in Africa. And yeah, yeah. Yes, we start talking about white supremacy in the police departments of this country and in the military. That history goes all the way back. We know who y'all are. We know who y'all are giving out water to the proud boys and boogaloo boys. Y'all all on the same team. Diddy is right. This boy win re-election or even if he don't, we might have enough if we buck. But at any rate, Marley does perform that concert, but he's sick. Marley says, I can't go on tour with you, Stevie. So Stevie Wonder, right? Gil Scott Heron writes about this in here. Stevie Wonder is like, look, I don't trust anybody on tour with me because, you know, I'll be playing on the piano. Then I get up and want to dance. I can't be tripping over no cables. I need somebody with me who's going to guide me over this shit so I can get out here and dance. So Marley's people get Gil Scott Heron. Gil Scott Heron says, I go on tour with him. And we are the ones. It was, he said, I watched this man up close. It was Stevie Wonder. And, of course, Gil Scott Heron being very, very humble. It's Stevie Wonder. It's also Gil Scott Heron helping get that whole animus together, get that whole momentum together. They come to D.C., the big rallies they have, and Martin Luther King's birthday is signed as a national holiday. And guess what? We had an enemy in the White House at the time, Ronald Reagan. Reagan signed that. You think he did it because he wanted to? No. Stevie, <laughs> I mean, it's one thing that people lobby, and he writes it, and that's why he calls his book The Last Holiday, a memoir. So, and let's pause there because I saw somebody in the comments was like, well, we can't vote unless they give us something. No, you force you the power, as Dr. Carr said, voting is not even it's not it's the it's the what'd you say, what'd you call it? It's not the voting is just a tactic. In fact, a, I, you I, I should it's mention it's one more here. This is about the second book me and me and me and Nick wrote. Y'all know Dick Gregory ran for president, right? <laughs> this is the book Write Me In by Dick Gregory. I, I helped Dick Gregory. The last thing he wrote, Kanye, there was Dick Gregory. <laughs> there was Dizzy Gillespie. People don't know that was kind of a, a gimmick campaign. But Dick Gregory, and I'm fat, in fact, let's go. Can I'm give me 30, just 30 more seconds? I want to show you all this is the table of contents. Why I want to be president. He says, just from a politician and a statesman, there's only one qualification he goes through how I want to be president. The nation's insane, moral fallout, the Gregory report on civil disorders. Let me tell you what Dick Gregory did. He writes a book and then outlines the Gregory Accords, Lights in the United States, Crisis in Town and Country, the Gregorian Court Calendar, Pencil Power, How to Write In. Dick Gregory. Did he do this? Hold on, Dr. Scott. Did, did he do this months before the election? Hell no. <laughs> did he Did he do that within the election after the primaries? Did he do that? When did he have his manifesto on his platform? He put this together during the year 1968. It's published in, in June 1968. So it's published at the time the conventions are going on. In other words, it's already Democrat, it's already Republican, but we're living in a side now. Vietnam is going on. In fact, this book is dedicated to all Democrats and Republicans in this country who have created the atmosphere which makes this book necessary. There mm. isn't, the, but, but here's the point. There isn't the same calculated risk in 1968 because the thing is, you got to end the war. Remember, Johnson doesn't run for re-election. That's right. 
The anti-war effort makes him step back. Bobby Kennedy didn't have, this is before Kennedy gets his brains blown out or gets shot in the chest rather. And um, in that hotel in LA after he won the California primary. Nixon ends up winning the election of 1968 and ending the war. So what, what am I saying? I'm saying there are risks involved. Dick Gregory got thousands of votes. But here's what Dick Gregory did to Ice Cube and Diddy and them and Kanye. Kanye, this Kanye, this is the book you should read. In fact, I know Nick brought it up when y'all talked. Dick Gregory, I wish Mr. G was here to talk to you about it. Dick Gregory said, I'm going to give you a book to work with because my organizational logic and politics for this, I'm not going to win. In fact, Dick Gregory said, if I had won, I would have demanded a recount. But here's the thing. Write a write-in candidate who's not on the ballots? Understand what Dick Gregory is trying to do is make a political statement that isn't that different than what Kanye is talking about, except it's absolutely different. It's absolutely that there's a substantive piece. And Dick Gregory, by the way, and I should end with this for real, uh, 1962 with Mega Evers, then with Dr. King and them, Dick Gregory, who was one of the, was really the pioneer comedian of his generation. Bill Cosby is doing what he's doing, but Dick Gregory at the Playboy Club, Dick Gregory kicks in that door and that whole generation of, in fact, Mr. G, his last book that he uh, that he did, I helped him with the book. In fact, I wrote the book forward to the paperback edition. He would come to Howard and we would sit and talk back and forth. And one night, his his uh, one day, his son, Christian, who is the manager, does the estate. In fact, I'm sure they're going to republish this book because Christian's republishing, they're republishing all of it. Chris calls me and says, look, man, dad is going to be a little late today. I said, we can take the day off. He said, no, 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 no. He don't want to miss no days. So he said he was up all night last night. Well, no, he well, he said, no, he coming. And true enough, he come driving up in that little silver Benz he used to drive, yeah. it violating all rules of traffic and law, park wherever the hell he want. Nobody, the president, how you write, nobody. He park in that space, that's Dick Gregory car, leave it alone. And then spend all day talking to the kids in the middle school and the college kids before we could even go anywhere. And I would never interrupt him. That was my man. But he said, Christian said he was up all night because he was at the Kennedy Center. This was the day after they had taped the presentation and they gave Eddie Murphy the Mark Twain prize. And then all the comedians came to Dick Gregory's hotel room and he stayed up all night with them as they were asking him all kinds of questions. So he said they were all there. All of anybody you can think of who's a famous black comedian, black male sisters there too, but I know the black men were there. Dick Gregory is taking them down through the schooling. Because they want to know because Dick Gregory, the biggest comedian, black comedian there was at the height of his popularity through the whole platform into the civil rights movement and stayed there the rest of his life. Yes. So there, there are models to follow, brothers. And I do say brothers, and I want to put Megan in this like that, but I'll say brothers and sisters. I, we, we, and I'll stop talking at that point, but this is a very important piece to think about. All right, let's spend a little, just a minute or two. Um, we normally would end promptly at two, but I'm going to take it to another 30 minutes because I do want your view on Cleopatra because we... we uh, oh, yes. Yeah. So, did they talk about Cleopatra yet? You know, I, I was raised in an era where Cleopatra was Elizabeth Taylor. And Me some too. of my mind felt like, how? How is Elizabeth Taylor Cleopatra? It's very simple. Now it's going to be Gal Gadot, who, I, you know, she's great as Wonder Woman. I'm not mad at it. But yeah. I, I, I asked the question, you know, was she African? Now, I know that she had Grecian roots or what have you, but yes. 
were, were people set because there was no race back then, right? Yeah. 2000, 3000 years ago, people were not separated by race. I no. know that Africa 3000 years ago was hot. still hot. Egypt was still hot. Greece was hot. People had browner skin and curly hair. I don't know. What might she look like, Dr. Carr? And give us some, you know, some history about this woman and why Hollywood uh, keeps bastardizing Egypt in a way yes. that, that makes it closer to Europeans. Well, there are, I think there are two, and I'm looking down because there have been a number, of course, books written about Cle Cleopatra is the most written about Egyptian. Um, she's the most She's the most, one of the, if not the most written about or talked about known figure from ancient Egypt. Um, she is an absolutely minor figure in African history. In fact, she doesn't really warrant much discussion. Minor? minor? Minor. She's absolutely minor. Uh, how did they bring her into this space? Well, and somebody said 200 years from now, Beyonce will be white. I think that's true, right. Brian. No question. Well, well, as as with most things, uh, in, my, in, in the last five hundred years, and in this case, the last two thousand years, uh, as in most things in the world to which we are trained and socialized, it's all about white people. So, let me explain that because, as a person, as a, as students of history, particularly those of us who were raised by cats like Jacob Carruthers and them, John Henry Clark and all them, you know. Clark used to always say about Cleopatra, why y'all obsessed with Cleopatra? Let, let them have Cleopatra. And so I learned it from the best, like, oh, by the way, Gail Gadot is Wonder Woman. This is just a footnote. Those of you who are interested, go back to 1973, Wonder Woman, the comic book, and look for a sister named Nubia, N-U-B-I-A, like the country. Uh, just as a little titillator for people to go back and look, Nubia is the black Amazon that trained Wonder Woman. So anyway, anyway. That's for another day. So, there's Wonder Woman there. Okay, that's cool. So, Cleopatra comes at the end of Egypt's history. In fact, John Clark used to say Egypt was old and tired by the time you get Cleopatra the seventh. So, uh, we don't know what she looked like, and I'm gonna solve that. I'm not. We can't solve that mystery, but I'm gonna say why it will remain a mystery forever. But there are two issues involved here. And, and, and earlier this week, when they announced it, and, and you know, you raised the question on social media on Twitter. You know, should she be the one? It could be Erica Badu. You know, I very quickly said, well, she was Macedonian. You know, she was a Ptolemy. So she really a Ptolemy, not Macedonian. Ptolemy, and that's a Greek. And so there. But then you, you said, well, she was in Africa, yeah, and had been there. People have been there for several hundred years. So. Is she African? Yes. Is she Ptolemy, which is the Greeks? Yes, at the same time. And so there's that issue. We'll talk about that in a second. The second issue, though, and this is the one that really begins to answer the question you just raised. Why are we talking about her and how did she get? See, Cleopatra comes into European history through Rome. Rome comes after Greece. And the Rome we know in 2020 is not really the Rome of the Roman Empire. It's the Rome that has been, which is where we have this word from, romance, and romanticized. It is the imaginary Rome that Europe stitched together in the Frankenstein monster we call Western civilization. Why do I call it the Frankenstein monster? Because none of these pieces came up in the same place. How you stitch the Romans to the British, by the way, Julius Caesar, read his uh, diaries of his travels, he gets to where they now call 
England? And he says, these people are so stupid, they wouldn't even make good slaves. I mean, but yet and still, they're all now part of the same Western civilization. Then you stitch the Germans in, you know, stitch the Gauls in. The Gauls, by the way, live in a place that the Franks from, Ger well, it's now Germany conquered. That's why they call it France instead of Gaul. But French is Gallic culture. What the hell? Is no, they're making a Frankenstein monster. You stitch the boot of Italy on there, which Rome hadn't conquered thoroughly by this time. There's an island off the coast, the toe of Italy, that wasn't part of Italy at all. But now it is, what, Sicily? Right? Yeah, what the hell? Man? And all this gets stitched to Greece and Rome. What the hell? What the hell is that? And then you got a whole Iberian Peninsula that the Muslims are on from 700 to about 1500 almost, so-called AD, that they had to put out when they unified the Catholicism, that becomes Portugal and Spain. Then you stitch it all together, it only comes together and then only tangentially, because just as it's been stitched together, it has been threatening to pull itself apart ever since them sutures healed. That's called World War One, World War Two, every damn conflict they've ever had, including the Africa, the European Union. You see now England has said, Boris Johnson, them, just walk away. Because they ain't never been that tightly stitched. But you know what really fused them? It's when they started sending ships across the ocean to displace the aboriginals, then pulled us into the criminal enterprise and invented something with a big W called white. All this stuff is imaginary. So the Frankenstein monster of Europe gets sutured together, but they got to have a usable past. That's the second part. So we'll come back to Cleopatra, who she is in his, in fact, for one, but we're going to talk about Cleopatra in European memory, which then they teach us, which is why Elizabeth Taylor is the one that sticks out for us, right? They have to have a usable past to make themselves glorious. They can't go through the lived experiences of Europe because they got a big problem, a big ass 800 year problem called the Moorish occupation of the Iberian Peninsula. So you got to skip over that. Even though, <laughs> no, even though, the fact that you have algebra and latitude and longitude and maps to go explore, all of that comes through the Africans and Arabs, the Muslims who taught you all that stuff on the peninsula. But we, we, we learned in elementary school, we just don't learn that they were Muslims. We learned Prince Henry the Navigator and nobody ever asked where he got the maps from since his ass ain't never been nowhere. It came from the Muslims. But anyway, it's neither here nor there. And we learned about Marco Polo, but not the places Marco Polo went except some spices and shit. The Asians had been places too. Y'all bringing this knowledge in, but your past don't look so good. So you skip over centuries and go get the Romans. <laughs> Roman Empire and Charlemagne the God. Dude, please drop that name. Take an African name. There are many names. Gibraltarik who invaded the Iberian Peninsula. That's why they called it the Rock of Gibraltar. You know, call yourself Tariq the God. Tariq means book. I know Tariq Trotter has it, Black Thought. Tariq means book. Don't be surprised when that brother spits. By the way, his last album just dropped a couple days ago. It's Hot Fire. That's my man, Philly's best, 215. But at any rate, when you see them jump over everybody, they go to Rome. Here's it. Now, before Rome, there was Greece. And we'll take Greece too. So they make up a European genealogy. Hmm. And the Greece and Rome that they have, because they do have access to that knowledge, comes through the Muslims who have added all that stuff they got from the Greeks and the Romans and the stuff they got before that from the Africans and everybody else, translated it into Arabic and then retranslated it out of the Arabic into the local languages of Europe, thereby letting the Europeans have access to what becomes the father through which they birth what? The Renaissance, the rebirth, as if they were ever born. The birth took place in Africa. The rebirth is in Europe. But we learn about the Renaissance and never ask, well, who was the birth? Well, the birth was Greece and Rome. Now, who taught the Greeks and the Romans? Now we get to Cleopatra. By the time Cleopatra shows up, Egypt has been going as an organizational kind of 
proposition for about 3,000 years. In AD 30, you see Cleopatra emerge because she's in a love affair with a couple of cats. Oh, by the way, this is how they stitched Cleopatra to the memory of Europe. It ain't the Romans. It, well, it is the Greeks and the Romans, but it's really the Romans. But it ain't the Germans. It ain't the French. It is the probably, I, you know, I, I'm just saying it's for dramatic effect, but part of it is partially true. If you had to pick one person who really allows Europe to fuse itself together, there are a lot of candidates, but I, you got to have in the conversation William Shakespeare. Because what Shakespeare does, Wait, in who? addition, who? Shakespeare. Does he, was he a real person? Oh, yeah, William Shakespeare. Yeah, well, 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 there are arguments. Like Christopher Marlowe, for example, they're saying, was he a person? But yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, there's a book called Will in the World. I mean, and they, I mean, of course, there's a library of Shakespeare books. We could talk about this. In fact, there are even books about how Shakespeare is taught in Africa. I, one of, uh, I won't be able to find it now. I wouldn't, wouldn't matter because I'm going to stay, we stay on, I'll stay on point. Um, oh, yeah, but here's what Shakespeare does. But there are a number of playwrights during the same period. So people argue like Christopher Marlowe, who wrote, wrote Dr. Faustus, Faustus and many other things, you know, not Gertha, but well, let me not get into that either. That's European drama history. And I know a lot of it because I was a drama major when I was an undergrad at Tennessee State. And the one thing about HBCUs, they used to make you do the European plays. So I played Oedipus. I played Every Man. We did all that stuff, right? So Shakespeare, but here's the significance of Shakespeare. Shakespeare historicizes European memory in many ways, particularly English memory, by writing historical plays. So if you think about Shakespeare's plays, they're really dramatic glosses and artistic glosses on what is becoming Western civilization's memory. Romeo and Juliet, okay, I'm gonna bring in the, the, the Montagues and the Capulets, I'm gonna bring in some of this, this beef is going on in, in, uh, in Iberian uh, Europe, okay. Uh, Othello, let me deal with the, somebody got to deal with these Moors. All right, I'll write a play about the Moors. I'll get the one Moors general and he'll be a man at a time. He's going to kill this white woman and it's going to be tragic. So now I've dealt with the Moors. All right, uh, what about the Romans? Uh, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. How y'all doing Shakespeare? How y'all doing Romans with British accents and not Italian accents? Why? Because Shakespeare wrote it. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but this I know you all did love him once. Wait, wait, why are you speaking with a British accent? Because Shakespeare has taken the Romans and given them to you. Midsummer Night's Dream, Two Gentlemen of Verona. He's going to write these histories and he's going to historicize Europe and put it where you can get it. Didn't Shakespeare write a play called Anthony and Cleopatra? Yeah. Absolutely. Because Cleopatra is at the center of this love triangle. She got a baby by, she got three babies by Mark Anthony. Alexander Helios, Cleopatra Selene, and Ptolemy Philadelphus. That's the three babies with Antony. Then she got a baby with Julius Caesar. Why is Caesar important? In fact, Caesar's a child is named Caesarian. Wait, we heard that before? Caesarian. Caesarian. Mm. I'm not sure that, I don't know the provenance of the procedure known as the Caesarian section the C-section in terms of birth, but I have stood at the temple of Kamambo on the banks of the Nile and looked at the Egyptian birthing process, which involves sitting in the birthing chair 
because the Africans know that you shouldn't be laying on your back with your legs in the air trying to give birth to a baby. You sit down on the birthing chair like you would sit on the toilet and the baby gravity does the rest. And next to this picture and the glyphs are all these surgical instruments that the Egyptians used to give birth because they were masters of giving birth. In fact, this conversation would probably be best be held with one of my former students who is now uh, 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 an intern, an MD, who is doing her residency at the Morehouse School of Medicine, Dr. Margaret Ridge, Maggie Ridge, black woman out of Boston, who has done research on this and talked about Peshisset, who was the head of surgery in ancient Egypt for a time, what they call the first lady physician in world history. But she talks about her and the sisters who were doctors with her during this period of ancient Egyptian history, which predates Cleopatra. Maggie could talk about this. And what do they say? Trust black women? I trust that black woman. So I would ask Maggie and her teacher, the greatest teacher of Egyptian hieroglyphs in the world today, who teaches at Howard University, the great Mario Beatty, about this. Because I've stood with Mario as he translated the glyphs and showed us the birthing chair. So maybe the C-section came out of a Caesarian, who was the son of Julius Caesar and Cleopatra. Now, finally, because there's two things going on here. Cleopatra as she was in life, Cleopatra as the Europeans have used her to create this illusion. And here's, I'm going to talk about where the two places meet. Give me, in fact, let me put my timer on because that way we won't go too far over. Let me see. I got my, you know, I got my timer. So I'm going to answer questions. Okay. And then we're going to do that. That's right. All right. Here we go. Very quick. Let me wrap it up. Alexander of Macedon, who some people sadly still call the great, invades Egypt in right around the 330s BCE. The Greeks want to come into Egypt. They didn't learn a whole lot from Egypt, Egyptians over the centuries. Now, now he's coming in. They go to North Africa. And as you've said many times, Professor Hunter, when you evoke the Candaces, ain't nobody ever gone that deep into Africa. They get off the coast, the Mediterranean coast. They come up the Nile, the length of almost really what is now modern Egypt, the state. But they don't go into Nubia. Because the sisters stopped Alexander. He y'all don't want this smoke. You don't want this smoke. So they'll never get that deep into Africa. But the, the top of Africa, on the coast, the Mediterranean coast, Alexander puts a city there called Alexandria. So, you know, I've never been to Alexandria. I've been to Egypt at least now in double figures, like 10, 11 times. We never get to Alexandria. We really had no interest in Alexandria. I want to go at some point. We talk about the Library of Alexandria. That's the Greeks. The Greek line of kings... Now they call them kings. They're also pharaohs, though, because when you invade Egypt, you come to Egypt, you got to be like the Egyptians. In fact, when Alexander shows up, he wants to know, where's the oracles? I want to go talk to be the temples. I'm the pharaoh. And the Egyptian priests are like, what? You're the pharaoh now. All right, can we go back to work? In other words, they kind of entertain the Greeks. <laughs> they humor the Greeks because they looking at the Greeks. Hell, they talk, They said years before, so on and them like, you Greeks are so stupid, you wouldn't even make good students. You don't stay long for anything. You go back and try to learn something. Pythagoras, you over here, you didn't draw some triangles. Now you want to go back. Y'all don't stay long enough to understand the moral foundation of education. Even Plato in his Scolia, Scolia says that, you know, the Greek education is not fit for pigs. The Egyptian education, it teaches you to be human. That is the purpose of education. So even the Greeks know that they're on that BS, but then Alexander's the military man, so they're going to occupy Greece. They end up occupying Greece for maybe three and a half centuries. The group of Greeks that call themselves pharaohs in the, upper, in the lower part of Egypt, and I'm going lower because Egypt moves from upper Egypt closer to the equator, down the Nile. The Nile runs this way, into the Mediterranean. So they call this uh, 
lower Egypt, but we would say north. The north of Egypt now is where the Greeks are. That group is called the Ptolemies. And I'm looking down because I'm going to show you all this book. There are a lot of books written on Cleopatra. This is one of my favorites because it's an art exhibition that was at the British Museum. It's called Cleopatra of Egypt, Princeton University Press and the British Museum Press. I like art catalogs often because all the stuff they stole, they then write essays about the significance <laughs> of it. <laughs> and that's what museums basically are. That's why they didn't have museums in Africa, Asia. Well, why do y'all have a museum? Y'all have a museum because this is shit you took. In fact, I always tell students, I say, we call them museums, but they should be really crime scene investigation as well because we just I, I use a shorthand, T-S-W-S. That's what I call white museums. The S we stole. So anyway, <laughs> or the S we took. Sometimes you can say other things, you know. So there's a genealogy of the Ptolemies. These are the Greeks going all the way through. Now, so from Ptolemy the first or Soter, over 300 years, I'm not even gonna go through all of them. We're gonna focus on the end of it. Why? Because the end of it is what we're interested in. These are all the Ptolemies over 300 years. The Africans, the Nubians doing what they doing, Aksum doing what it's doing, Kush doing what it's doing, they ain't paying no attention. This is the north part of Egypt. This is the Greek. And the Africans who are now oppressed by these Greeks, the priests, they still draw in glyphs, but those glyphs become almost indecipherable. Why? Because the quality of the glyphs begins to erode. When This is what you call late period when you go to Egypt. It's not old kingdom, not middle kingdom, that's thoroughly African. It's not even the 25th dynasty when the Nubians come down the Nile and restore order. Now the Greeks are in here. This is the Ptolemaic period. That's when the stuff started getting raggedy. You understand? The island. We go to the temple of Isis at Philae because the Europeans are in, right? The Africans are there. They said there's still a level of quality, but they're not showing them everything. It's very important to understand it. So is Cleopatra African? Oh, yeah, she's 300 years in, but she's 300 years in as a Ptolemy. And when you get to her, let me see, can you get, look, Cleopatra the seventh. You see her? Mm -hmm. There go her babies. Babies by Mark Anthony. Now the Romans gonna come in and get the Greeks. That's why she's the last one. Here's her child with Caesar. Caesar and Anthony, both Romans, and like these white dudes do, fighting. Like men, they fighting, right? But here's the problem. Let's separate the two. Here's where we're close. Cleopatra Seventh has a sister named Cleopatra the Sixth. She has a sister named Arsinoe, uh, two brothers, Ptolemy the uh, 13th and the 14th, Bernice the Fourth. Now, these are the children of Ptolemy the 12th, and Cleopatra V, her parents, her parents are also cousin, brother and sister, brother and sister. That's nasty. Oh, nasty. <laughs> or not. This so is where one comes in. This is the second part. This is, right, this right, is right. the this is no no. This is the historical Cleopatra. But the second one, the Elizabeth Taylor piece, that actually is very important, Karen. What you just said. Very important. We're going to come to that in a second. I'm about to end. So, her mother, Cleopatra V, her mother, who I guess would also be her auntie, her father's provenance is clear. But her mother is the, is the daughter of Ptolemy the Ninth. Ptolemy the Ninth has two wives. Cleopatra the fourth and Cleopatra Selene. 
but that ain't the end of the story. This dude out here sleeping with other people. And herein lies the mystery of Cleopatra because Cleopatra's mother is not Cleopatra IV or Cleopatra Selene. Cleopatra's mother is a what they call concubine. We don't know what she looked like. We don't know her background. Was she Nubian? Was she her mother has disappeared from history? There's nowhere to find her. So the only way she's not part of the inbred Greek family line is if her mother came from some harem. Is she Arab? Is she, I mean, who she could be anybody. We don't know her mother. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What am I saying? We don't know her grandmother, duh. Her grandmother, the concubine, is who gives birth to her mother and father. Ptolemy the 12th, Cleopatra the 5th, who then have her. We don't know her grandmother. So at best, let's say her grandmother's a Nubian, which I'm not even going to speculate, because they, they this is the kind of thing academics fight about all the time. And I'm not an Egyptologist. I asked Mario, I asked Maggie. Y'all talk about that. And all these Africans who are, by the way, all you Negroes out here using Hotep as a pejorative, you don't know a damn thing what we're talking about right now. And that is the difference between those who think you're so smart you can use Hotep as a pejorative and real scholars. At any rate, the idea is that if she is Nubian, let's say she Nubian, just for sake of argument, that would mean that Cleopatra is completely a Ptolemy out of the Greek line with the exception of her parents' mother. And that might be enough color to put her in line. Now, Gail Gadot, of course, out of Israel, which means she got a touch of the Moor, as they used to say in Moorish right. Spain. <laughs> anyway, okay, yeah. she got enough olive. Maybe she could play Cleopatra. But here's the second part, finally. The issue with Cleopatra isn't the historical Cleopatra. It's how she's been interpreted in history, which is why in this exhibition catalog, uh, the fourth section, Egypt and Rome, and the myth of Cleopatra, the article by Mary Hamer, chapter 11, The Myth of Cleopatra Since the Renaissance, on page 302, Mary Hamer says this. Caesar has this baby, but then Caesar dies. Julius Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar died. Augustus Caesar comes in. He want to be the man, which is why we got 31 days in August, like 31 days in July. They taking, they taking days out the damn calendar and putting their names in the calendar, which is why we are now in October, October 8th. Why is it the 10th? He's an Augustus Caesar trying to be famous. Anyway, so Augustus Caesar follows Julius Caesar, say, nah, you know what, Julius Caesar, you the man, they love you and us great, you know. In the deep future, we all gonna be dust and Shakespeare gonna write a play about you and shit. But right now, I'm the man. Your woman that you love so much to say it was so beautiful, Cleopatra, I'm going to make a, a, a statue of her, too, except I'm going to make her into this chick that was crazy and killed herself. <laughs> Why? Because it's about Rome now, baby. Later for Egypt, meaning later for Africa. And so Cleopatra becomes a tragic figure trying to hold on to power. But she also becomes a proxy for the rejection of Africa. Meaning mm -hmm. what? See them people down there, you know, they parents marriage and brother and sister and shit. And then she got a concubine. It's not how we do in Rome. Roman was civilized. So Augustus Caesar starts his ball rolling. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? And since then, Cleopatra is imagined first by Augustus and then the rest of the Romans and then remixed in the Renaissance. Then Shakespeare. And she comes forward in history as this mysterious figure from Egypt. The exotic 
kind of, you know, but she got to have some connection to Europe because Caesar fell in love with her. So she was beautiful. Okay. So let's make her white beautiful because we don't know she's mysterious. And then finally the black people wanting to reclaim Egypt because we have been trained to think of Cleopatra who the Egyptians will be looking at like, you go back 2,500 years, Hatshepsut would be like, who the, who the hell is that? She ain't even us. Jehudi Mosin be like, what does she have? Does she build anything? No. Wait, she fell in love with one of them savages from where? Rome? What the hell is Rome? No, they don't know nothing. She is complete. She's the last one of them. She, she trash. She come right. She comes to the reception after all the chicken is gone, all the meatballs is gone, all the good vegetables is gone, and the only thing left on the table is celery and ranch dip. That's Cleopatra. <laughs> you understand? So, and now, but to the Europeans, they're going to say, and of course, the celery and ranch dip from exotic Egypt was very important. That's the that's the Africa they want. They don't want the Candaces. They don't want nothing else out of it. They're going to take her out, make her into this exotic thing. At the same time, they're going to train us that when we say Egypt, we mean Cleopatra. And here we are trying to recover Egypt, but because of our deep miseducation, kind of whistling it again. We think Egypt, we think about the only thing they showed us, which was the only thing they wanted out of it, which was the one closest to them, which was Cleopatra. So we want to claim Cleopatra. So now we're going to make her black, even though the history don't necessarily support it. We're going to okay. make her, hey, hey, give her up. Give Thanks. her up. Let them not, have her. King yeah. Touch grandmother, black as hell, and look just like Lauren Hill. Y'all look up T-I-Y-E. With the Afro, the wife of Amenhotep the Third, the great diplomat. T was a hell of a diplomat. That's Akhenaten's mother. You go get T. She black as hell. Let them have Cleopatra, please. <laughs> Good. All right. So we have Cleopatra. We won't support it, and uh, we'll do or our- not, or not. Yeah. Uh, let's get some questions in. Um, hot, hot mama wants to know if um, how do we protect the legitimacy of our movements and organizations from infiltration or the corruption of our rhetoric. Mm. I don't think we, I don't know that we can. I think the only thing we can do, and I love I love this metaphor from the great Elijah Muhammad. We saw it in Denzel Washington's Malcolm X. Remember when Denzel went in to study with uh, Al Freeman Jr., the great actor, uh, late Al Freeman ancestor, taught at Howard for years. And Al Freeman pours the glass and puts the ink in the glass and it's dirty. Then he pours the clean glass. He says, as long as you pour in a clean glass of water, people will choose the clean glass. When people come in with this corrupting stuff, that's why I say we don't get tied up with Diddy and Kanye and Q. Look, we know y'all want what we want, but let's stay focused. Even Diddy said it five minutes into Charlemagne's interview. We got to get rid of Trump. Yeah, dude, but understand when you jump out there, you're creating confusion. So we got to stay focused. I don't know that we can prevent corruption because none of our institutions, none of our organizations are pure. I mean, when you go in the nation, it's real beef in the nation. You understand? I mean, at the 25th anniversary of the Million Man March, Louis Farrakhan brought out the children of Elijah Muhammad. None of the uh, children that he brought out were children that Elijah Muhammad and Clara Muhammad's had. These are children that Elijah Muhammad's had with other women. And so I'm saying, there's this all kind of like, what, what the hell? What, what is going Except they call them wives in the nation of Islam. And guess what? You can take it or let it alone, as they say in the nation. But I'm saying, our organizations have to be grounded at least in the aspiration to integrity, the aspiration to open discourse, and the aspiration to pour the clean glass, which means the glass that represents the best of our tradition. And as long as we're doing that, I think that's pretty much all we can do in yeah. terms of trying to protect ourselves. Uh, Caspi wants to know how he could start his own printing press. 
not enough money. And I, I want to I want to answer that because please, because you would know. I, I <laughs> no, no, no. I, you know, I was going to start my my. I had a publishing house, you know, and then I'm like, why work so hard when there's somebody else out there doing it? So I reached out to you, brother Coates. Paul Coates has a printing press and his own yep. publishing house. So why not just filter my books through his press the way? You know, like why we like we everybody wants to be the first or the only person in the marketplace instead of working together to make something big bigger, like bring that's, the talent to the thing that's already working. I just, I, I just it's mad. So no, Karen, that's that's an important lesson that you just taught. You're teaching us. Coates has the presses, and Diddy, Black Independent Party, talk to the people who are doing it. Q, plan. Get Derek and them. Derek is the reason my brother. In fact, I should call Derek now. I say, man, go get these documents, bro. And the ones that inform them. Guess what? You don't reinvent the wheel because see, when you bring this other stuff in, you bring in the people who worked on that stuff. And they say, okay, this is what we was waiting for. <laughs> this is what you do. And, and, and that's how we preserve institutional knowledge. You know? No question. Coach knows things I don't know. He learned from people that aren't here. And then it gets carried forward we keep losing our institutional knowledge because everybody wants to be first to market. Our egos okay. get the best. I have no ego in the in the servant servitude of black people. That's I just want to so if if I have ideas and books, this man is gonna do it. If I want to do movies, if somebody out there is doing movies already, why do I need to start a movie house? I sat there and I was like, there's a lot of work, time, money, and effort. Right. That's right. All right. That's right. Uh, Charles Joseph wants to know, is there a black history course taught by Dr. Carr that he can attend online? What are we doing? I was, I just wanted to put that. Okay, very good. Oh, I, see what, I see what you did there. I see what you did there. The answer is yes. All right. Uh, yeah. uh, Carlos wants to know, Dr. Carr, can you explain how the critical race theory was developed? Very quickly, if I could do that in 30 seconds. In fact, let's do a whole thing on it, Karen. We'll do, okay. we'll do a class on critical okay. CRT. Critical race theory is came out of the law, the critical, critical legal studies movement. Uh, this comes out in the late 60s, early 1970s, which is basically a critique of the nature of legal institutions and legal theory. Um, it's kind of a, a, a structuralist argument. The idea is what is the purpose of law? And so if you take law as a necessary first principle for the development of society, rule of law is at the center. So this is why messing with the courts is problematic because when you start undermining the idea that the law can be followed, you're now going to create a situation where it's just going to be a fight. I mean, if ain't no rules, then let's just go, <laughs> let's just go for broke. So the critical legal studies movement is really critiquing the oppressive nature of law. Out of the critical legal studies movement comes a kind of critique of how that operates in the field of race and racial oppression. So what you see is, um, oh wow, making a long story short, David Trubeck at Yale, uh, mm, mm, mm. uh, there's several, several young scholars at Yale. Stoughton Lynn is one who's often mentioned. Uh, Harvard has a few people who cluster around there. And eventually, by now we're talking about into the 1970s, you start seeing some theorists, some white, some black. The key black figure who's usually identified as being at the beginning of this is Derek Bell. Derek Bell, who was a lawyer for the NLCP Legal Defense Fund, very important scholar. He says, you know what? Let's reframe the idea of the law around the experiences of black people and take the experiences of black people and use them to critique the legal structure, to, to critique precedent, to create statutes, and we'll do it through a modicum of storytelling. 
will use narrative to reframe that. So that's where you start getting critical race theory in the law. It really comes out of legal studies. And so um, uh, then the next wave comes in, which is the students of some of these people, like Trubeck and them, Kimberly Crenshaw, for example, who's at the University of Wisconsin with a William a Hasty fellow. William Hasty actually was a professor of law at Howard University. We had gone to Harvard. Hasty, Charles Hampton Houston, Ben Davis, who was a communist congressman from New York, for example, come out in that first iteration of scholar of blacks who go to Harvard. That's volume two of the history of Harvard Law School just came out. It's called The Intellectual Sword. It tells this story. But at any rate, Kim Crenshaw comes out as a student of one of those early white kind of critical race, critical legal scholars theories. And of course, she is given credit for kind of uh, popularizing, elevating, and explaining the term intersectionality. It comes out again, this question of how do we tell stories from the perspective of the lived experiences of black women, women, you know, people in different classes. And Derek Bell is given credit for kind of sparking this movement that eventually finally escapes the law and becomes a framework for critic for critiquing existing power relations and structures. And that is what is generally called under a very broad umbrella that we'll need to talk about in much more detail, critical race theory. It came out of the critical legal studies movement, but critical race theory. And that applies to education, environmental studies, uh, entertainment, you name it. Any area of life activity, the critical race theory universe continues to expand. And it scares the hell out of Donald Trump and them because they are, of course, white nationalists and they will not be decentered for any reason. Listen, you have to applaud the, you know, I, I was having this, uh, I had an epiphany that Trump was trying to delegitimize Obama for eight years, Arthur, this and that. Got together with Bannon, whose goal is to dismantle the government. What's the best way to dismantle this government than to put somebody in the presidency that delegitimizes the entire office, which says that that Negro that sat in that seat for eight years, this is nothing. That's right. I'm going to destroy the office so mm. that people that sat there no longer has any luster because the entire framework around the presidency is now nothing. So thoughts on that before we log on. You know what you make as you were talking, you know, in another life, I'd have been a filmmaker or a baseball player or a musician, something other than this. But remember that scene in Batman when Michael Caine is explaining when he was in the army? And by the way, if y'all are in the Batman, DC Comics, you know, Alfred Pennyworth, there's a whole story. They love messing with Alfred in the comics. Alfred been everything, an adventurer. I was telling you, Alfred says, you know, uh, Michael Caine says, you know, I was, uh, I guess he's telling Christian Bale, you know, while we were with this general and we were marching through the jungle and then we came upon this village and everything was gone and uh there was a little boy playing with a ruby the size of his palm of his hand and they had been paying the local warlord in rubies to enact terror or whatever and the little boy was playing with the ruby and he said why is this little this is very valuable why is this child sitting here and everything is gone things the people dead people the warlord was taking the rubies, which were the most valuable thing to the army people, thinking they paying him in rubies, and throwing them away. Throwing them away. The goal wasn't negotiate with these people. They had another set of objectives, and he ends the story of Christian Bale, and Bale is like, well, what's the point? Michael Caine looks at him and says, some men just want to watch the world burn. <laughs> Meaning what? 
abandoning them, understand, in order to remake these institutions, you got to rob them of any value they have. And then we'll build something else. And understand, Steve Bannon is not an American nationalist. See, he's only American nationalist for those of you who think the United States is the center of his worldview. Steve Bannon traveling all over the world. If you know anything, in fact, there's a brand new book that just came out. I won't even stop you looking. We got to talk about that next week as well. On the global far right in Germany, in France, in England, all over wherever these white people are. Look here. Bannon is traveling because they are looking at this not as an American race war. They're looking at this as the last stand of white supremacy. And with all due respect to all my friends talking about anti-racism in America, you better go back and read Francis Cress Wilson. It's called global white supremacy. Not American white supremacy. American white supremacy is just a branch of global white supremacy. This cat's a globalist. They're going to destroy these institutions to rebuild them if they can get away with it. And now we here talking about, hey, you three dudes over here, don't vote for either side. Vote for yourself. Okay, now that's the kind of foolishness and conversation that's going to have you out there having to fight some of these white boys. And guess what? Some of them police you fighting got military training overseas with their white nationalist friends. And that ain't over here. And don't think this is going to exp- this is going to end in your little town. They talking to each other all over the world. So, yeah, when you were talking, I was thinking about that. Some men just want to see the world burn. And on that note, Dr. Carl, (laughs) thank you for another riveting in class with Dr. Gray. Thank you. Thank you so much. Professor Um, Hunter, we had a ball. Thank you, first of all. Thank you, first of all, for going live today because we would normally take, but the times are dictating. And thank you finally for creating this space. And you all, please subscribe to this channel. Tell your friends, we doing this not only as a labor of love, but as a duty. We have to do this. You know, the the coronavirus, the pandemic has destroyed the whole old way of doing things. And a lot of that includes higher education. Higher education shouldn't be confined to college. Higher education is us deciding we're going to know more than we knew yesterday. So we can do a little bit, bit toward that step. I'm with you, sis, to the well, wheels listen, come off. But we're going to win. So Listen, and for all of the donors yeah, and everything. Oh, we're going to oh, be all right. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just using Kendrick because I'm thinking about my my my, my, my crew there. Uh, this is Jeff Chang's latest book. We're going to be all right. We're going to be all right. Uh, thinking about Terrace Martin. Thinking about uh, Robert Glasper and all them cats we were talking about last week. In fact, there's a new book. Let me see if I can find it. There's a new book on Kendrick that uh, I know it's time to go, but I want to shout this brother out. Uh, let me see if I can find it. I'm going to look on my computer here. Um, oh, yeah, Marcus, my man, Marcus Moore. It's called The Butterfly Effect. That was me, Marcus Moore, and uh, Terrace Martin out of, out of California and Robert Glasper talking about his book with the California African American Museum. My former student who's out there now running things for the education program, uh, Alex Mitchell, who soon get her PhD in African American Studies at Cornell. Philly girl. Love, Alex. We're going to be all right because they're on the way, Karen. And we're just going to keep rolling. All right. See y'all next week. Let me thank everybody that participated today. Bought some shirts, donated, cash tapped. And oh, everything. wonderful. It, it helps in the sweatshirts. I was talking to, to somebody about reproducing some of your sweatshirts because they've become legendary as well. Oh, no. Of yeah. course. Of course. Much. Yeah. In fact, this one came from the Howard students. They have the Ira Aldridge Theater. They named the theater at Howard University for Ira Aldridge. Because, you know, if you got black space, name it for black people. It's okay. I mean, and I'll wear this before I wear something with Howard on it, with all due respect, because Oliver Otis Howard, you're not my dad. So anyway, I'm sorry. You had to change the name, but it's cool. <laughs>
Dr. Carr, have a blessed rest of your weekend. You too, you too, Professor Honey. Love you. Thank everybody. Appreciate y'all. We'll see y'all next week.